That, um, that Michael Decon. Michael Decon. All right, go, go. In five, three. That's tomorrow, and that is it. In five, four. That's tomorrow, and that is it for us today. And we will leave you with a. I can't do it. We'll do it live. Okay. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can. I'll write it, and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. End of day. The freedom of speech is being taken away. They die. You don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. That's the great question. What is the long-term effect of too much information? One of them live in a society now where it hurts first. You're here. Get it out there. We don't care who it hurts. We don't care who it is. We don't care if it's true. Just say it. Sell it. Anything you practice, you'll get good at. Including in, what, was it 1997, Michael? And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day, all the way from the wastelands of California. My name is Michael, and I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a different kind of show, a place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity. Live and direct right now on the TuneIn Radio app. Search End of Days or go to michaeldeacon.com. If you care to interact with me or other listeners just like yourself, go to Live Chat Room now. This is a call-in show. Please feel free to call in whenever your heart desires. That number is 760-332-8724 or 760-332-8920. My first guest tonight is Chad and Alta. Chad and Alta met and married in the early 1990s in the city of Little Rock, Arkansas. What they didn't know is that from that moment on, the couple would partake in a journey into the world of unknown and high strangeness. My goodness. Then, of course, after the break, Jonathan Gray joins me once more. He's been here before many, many, many moons ago. So glad he can join me once more. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Always an honor and pleasure to be here. It feels so good to be here. Thank you to those here in America, rather. I was going to say thank you to those outside of America. It seems like we have a huge international audience tonight. It's kind of weird, but not weird. As always, we have a lot on our plate tonight. The usual song and dance we see on our television screens. Earthquakes out here in California. Then, of course, us out here on the West Coast have to contemplate if we will be hit by North Korea. My goodness. What an interesting time to be alive. I believe our first guest is ready to go. Let's bring them in. Chad, is that you? Yes, it is. Wonderful. Are you alone tonight, or am I speaking to uh, two entities here? Hi, this is Alta. There we go. <laughs> I knew you it's were nice hiding. Nice to meet you. Oh, it's it's an honor to meet both of you. I had seen both of your names pop up uh, here and there, and then all of a sudden I see Chad messaging me, and I thought, wow, very nice. Uh, I was looking forward to talking to both of you. Oh, it, it, it's an honor. We're we're just both very happy to be here. Trust we, me, you we generally you, uh, always do this together anyhow because we, you know, we have very different accounts. 
Oh, okay. Yes, right. That's very true. And both of you joined me at, at the right moment in time. I'm actually celebrating from last week, and I will toast both of you right now. I am drinking and um, enjoying myself doing this program. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, awesome. thank you very much. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. It's a celebration tonight. And I welcome all to join me in the festivities. And I believe uh, there's another another soul will be joining us in a moment. So don't be afraid. But before we begin, can you both can you both give us a, a little bit of background information on both of you here? Give us a little timeline uh, before you actually met and fell in love. Tonight is a love story. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Chad's pointing at me, and I I'll go ahead and. And begin this process, and certainly it applies. I am 10 years older than Chad, so my childhood is, uh, there's a lot of mystery in my childhood, let me say it that way. I don't have any real childhood memories before the age of nine. Um, I'm told that I am from the reservation area of Arizona, uh, the San Carlos Apache Reservation area, but again, I have this a lot of mystery back there. I'm raised primarily only by a mom. She has since crossed over. So really, my only family is Chad. So I don't have anyone to ask questions from. Oh, I but, see. Um, my first memory, you know, just part of this mystery is my actual first. And it's a very acute memory. It's when I'm about nine years old. See, apparently, my mom and I and my mother had married my stepfather when I'm about five. We were apparently living in Aurora, Colorado at the time. This would have been about the mid-60s. And um, my first memory is being tested for what was called ESP in a military hospital by the name of Fitzsimmons Military Hospital. Now, when I say that's my first memory, it literally is my first memory. I'm right. all of a sudden in a, in a hospital kind of environment and I'm being tested. And, you know, that's that's how I sort of wake up and then it seems I go back to sleep for a period of time again because then we have since left that area and relocated to the Midwest where I spent about 10 years of my life that I think seemed to be fairly normal whatever that means so that's kind of the beginnings of my early childhood nice nice and Chad and, yeah myself uh, I am uh, originally from Arkansas um pretty much born and raised there most of my life until high school and uh didn't have a lot of paranormal experiences or anything uh, uh there were some stories of uh when my dad was a rice farmer some uh very strange uh burnt circles out in the middle of one of the crop fields out by the house um uh, some uh, things uh moved around the house when my uh dad and my and his second wife were together uh but uh yeah i'm uh, i'm i'm from arkansas so, very nice yeah. and before both of you had this incredible experience were both of you into the paranormal or w- was all this just it just happened you guys weren't actually interested in any of this sort of thing right well in essence that would be i believe the the correct response for both of us chad's Again, acknowledging and having me share this part of it, we neither one of us had any interest in uh, what's now commonly called UFOs, aliens, ETs, uh, nothing in that regards. I, I wasn't even interested in, you know, so-called sci-fi. 
uh, Chad might have had a little more interest than I did, but not much. So as far as paranormal was concerned, me being mixed Indian, there's a lot of lore in our culture that I just accepted. Uh, I'm not raised with the people, but I'm, I'm a traditional dancer. I've had my regalia all my life and, you know, certainly understand the culture to the best of my mom's ability. And, you know, so much of this is the cryptics and, and, uh, shape-shifting and so on is, you know, part of our lore. And it's not something I really gave too much thought to, to be honest with you. I just, I guess I just accepted. Um, I had a lot of uh, what I guess folks would call ghosty. I've kind of babied up a lot of the language because it has been a lot of scary in our lives. Um, but I did seem to have more than, I guess, maybe the norm kind of ghosty encounters or experiences. But it just didn't really, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem that strange to me. Right. Um, maybe, maybe again, because I understood from an early age on that I was, as I was often called, overly sensitive or sensitive. So maybe to me, it's all been energy from the beginning. Um, but as far as interest, I had none as far as pursuing it or investigating it or even wanting to know anything about it. Right. Right. And, and you're highly intuitive. I can sense that now. I've certainly been, I've certainly been told that, you know, throughout my life and, and my mom certainly seemed to confirm that from my early childhood. Again, those years that I don't remember, but she would indicate that apparently I was a prophetic dreamer, you know, very early on and that kind of thing. I will also mention since, since we are in our early childhood, something that my mom would share with very few folks in my life, in my early life. Um, and when she did bring it up, this subject, I would disappear out of the room out of just, you know, sheer embarrassment. I just wanted to just crawl away like I wasn't hearing what she was saying. Um, and, and I would use the reference to, you know, she sounds crazy. And yet my mom was the furthest thing from crazy, but she would share very seldom that at some point when she left my father, apparently in the late fifties, um, this would have made it the end of 57, the beginning of 58. She said I was about six months old and I was the only passenger in the car. She's driving a car. And she said it's daytime and we're crossing a desert. I have no idea any more information than what I'm offering, but that she indicated that a small metallic craft came down out of the sky and stopped her on the road. Now, that's all I remember ever being said, because at that point now I'm, as I said, crawling away, trying not to hear that she had just uttered those words because I couldn't believe they were coming out of her mouth. So the point is, I never questioned her, and I don't remember anybody else ever challenging her either over any of that. Right, and, and your mother seems to have been a big uh, driving influence for you. Absolutely. Right. In many ways. I mean, it was a very challenging relationship between her and I, of course, later on into my life. Because, again, I learned that a lot of things I had been told early on maybe weren't necessarily the way that I had been told and, you know, it caused a lot of pain and frustration and more curiosity. So, but a driving force she absolutely is, was. Yeah. And her death really bothered you, didn't it? Well, you know, it happened on my birthday. Ah, you know, I see. Literally. I knew it. She was taken on my birthday. Right. And, um, as I'm sure it would for anybody, but again, she was my only family besides Chad and it was, uh, mind blowing. I had been preparing years prior to her death clearly having no idea that it was going to be a death, but I was very excited. Um, Chad, if you'd offer what you remember about that, you said that I was telling you when we first oh, met. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Alto, when we first met, she told me a couple of things, and one was that uh, uh, she would never 
mother children, but she would mother many. Ah, I see. And then the other thing was she couldn't wait until she was 40 years old. Now, you know, no woman says, I can't wait till I'm 40. But she says, you know, I can't wait till I'm 40 years old. <laughs> right. And, I, and I'll very, mention this was uh, when I was 33. Yeah, so this, this is was seven years first, prior. Yeah, this is, I was 33 when I met Chad. Yeah, and I, he says that yeah, I was saying Yeah, you know, I can't wait till I'm 40 years old. You know, something, you know, life-altering change is going to happen. Right, so, right. You don't really hear that very often at all. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, interesting. And so... Thus it was, my mom died on that day, and we've certainly, it was, you know, a huge shock, needless to say. Right. And then it was three months after my mom's passing that we had essentially what everyone else is referring to as this big event in our lives that the book is basically kind of written around. But we'd had an awful lot of other things happening, you know, from the very beginning in our relationship. I have a question. Chad, was it love at first sight? Yeah, uh, it was, it was kind of, it was, it was like we had a connection for sure. Hmm. I see. And then, and then we discovered within 24 hours of, I call it being arranged. I mean, this was on Valentine's Day and there's no question there was high strangeness involved from the very beginning. And there always has been in our relationship, always has been this hidden hand involved in us. But within 24 hours, we discovered from Chad's mom that her father, who, who essentially was, you know, a real primary factor in Chad's life and raising, you know, him growing up with his brother, kind of a real strong father figure in Chad's life. Anyhow, the world knew this man as George and Chad knew him as Papa, but his birth name that's on his gravestone is, his first name is Alta, and of course that's my name, and his last name is Duncan, and that happens to be my mom's name. And so that starts, that that absolutely, when I learned that, it it shocked me inside so big because I just couldn't, and I still can't get my head wrapped around. Yeah, she hid from me for the first uh, three, three months. months. <laughs> she hid from you? Yeah, yeah. Just I guess that the, the, the shock, way we met and the so shock of, me. Uh, mm. of, and I guess the the quick connection that we had. I see. By the way, someone in the chat wanted to ask, how did they test for ESP? I forgot to mention that to you. I don't know. I don't remember the name of the test. Um, I've not looked up the name of it, but it's a, again, keep in mind, this was in the 60s. Um, it, it's a test where they hold up cards um, with a diagram or a symbol on the card, and you are blocked from, you know, in this case, I was sitting at a small table or desk, large desk, if you will, with a doctor looking at a person in front of me in a white lab coat. It was a, it was a guy and he was holding up a card that had a symbol on it. And there was a barrier between him and I where I couldn't see it, of course. And it was the objective of the test was to see if I could, I guess, psychically see the symbol. Again, this test has a name and a scientific name. And I just, I don't know what it is right now, but. This certainly has been a very common test, I, I believe, for many certain types of occasions in dealing with psychology and so on. But very clearly, this test for ESP. Right. So this story really began in 1995, correct? Well, our story actually began in 1990. Oh, um, 1990, again, okay. Right. That's On Valentine's Day, there's no question that Chad and I were 
again, my word has always been not Chad's, but I have always said and have been consistent to, you know, the term arranged. It was just no question about it that there was this uh, uh, paranormal, high strangeness, whatever, all involved in making sure that Chad and I got together. And then I disappeared on him, you know, as he said, because it just really, I'd already grown up with so much mystery in my life. I just didn't need any more. And I couldn't get my head wrapped around it, and it just frightened me. And so I disappeared for three months. Then we got reconnected uh, in 1990, and then we married a year later in 1991. We relocated to Louisiana in 1995, and uh, my mom was living in Louisiana at the time, and she had asked if we wanted to come and join her, and we did. You know, we missed her, and so we moved to the outskirts of Hammond, Louisiana, which is about an hour outside of New Orleans. And it's kind of swampy area. And we came here very naive, um, you know, just excited and naive and had no concept of the swamps in Louisiana. And so that was our, that was our, our real beginnings, if you will, of, as I often say, not being able to really go back to sleep again over what was behind arranging us. That I still question, but I'll have Chad share with you what happened to us in 95 once we got to Louisiana. Sure. Yeah, uh, we're going into town for the evening for, uh, dinner. Uh, it wasn't, uh, wasn't quite dark yet. It was still pretty light outside. It was kind of an early dinner and we're just getting into town and we go around this group of trees in the kind of in the bend of the road. And when we get around this bend of the road and this group of trees, we see this craft in the sky, and it's just, I mean, it's massive. It's just huge. It's, you know, almost like football field size. You know, it's, it was above the, um, this shopping center, and it was bigger than the shopping center, the, the parking lot, everything. It was fairly low to the ground, below cloud level. Uh, it was very dark, black, metallic. Looked like it was probably about two or three stories thick, uh, kind of a rectangle shape, but not as wide on one end as the other. Uh, two or three lights on the, the, the short end, the smaller end, three or four lights on the, the wider end. And again, moving very, very slow, you know, if at all. And like I said, we're driving, I'm driving. It's on the right, right hand side of the road, you know, and, I kind of look up, and Alta looks up. I look down at Alta. She looks at me. I look back up at it and immediately just focus my attention back to the, the road. Like, okay, if it don't see us, if we don't look at it, it won't know we're here. It won't know we saw it. And Alta and I never spoke about it. We went on to dinner. Never, you know, it was just mind-blowing. Yeah, it must have freaked you out. Yeah. Right. That That's exactly. I always say my brain exploded, and I went into shock. And, you know, I never looked at it. Once I, once I saw this thing the size of the sky that was covering the sky, I, you know, it just, I turned my head away instantly, and I refused to look at it. Refused. So I can't even begin to explain our behavior, my behavior, but it was just too big, and it was too silent. Understood. Yes. And and for the sake of conversation, since I'm drinking alcohol, were both of you sober at the time? 
Thanks oh, for yeah. asking. We absolutely were. I'm not sober now. I'm just making that clear with you. Right. <laughs> right. We understand. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, being had, honest. Uh, just being honest. We had, we, we had just left the house and, you know, after working all day. Right. And, uh, just heading to a restaurant. Yeah. Right? Just We'd had went nothing. home, freshened up, uh, yeah. and, and headed on out. So that was, you know, that essentially happened to us. And then we chose to make it a non-event in our minds until the next morning we discovered that we believe somebody must have called it in, reported it some way, somehow. And I think we turned on the radio and the car or something and heard it on local news that it had been reported. So, of course, that made it that made it impossible for us to say it was a non-event. But even then, we still chose to ignore it. We chose to not acknowledge it or deal with it at all. And we didn't. And then very shortly after this, we moved from that area then to the French Quarter, you know, about an hour away. Um, now, again, this is all in 1995. When Chad and I made the decision to move to the Quarter, please, anybody that's hearing us, remember that from the moment we met, for the most part, within that year of deciding we were going to get married, We'd always made an arrangement, we'd always made an agreement to never have children. And so we've never had children. So please keep this in mind with all of our crazy decisions about our life. You know, we didn't have any responsibilities to anyone else except each other. So we lived this very kind of spontaneous life. And so we moved to New Orleans to the quarter, not at all prepared. We were both very naive. Now I am 10 years older than Chad. So. I shouldn't have, you know, had an excuse of being so naive, but we were very naive about the French Quarter. By the way, I I have to interrupt you really quickly and just ask, are you familiar with uh, Eve Lorgan? I sure am. This kind of sounds like the whole alien love bite. Exactly. It really does. She was kind enough many years ago, probably almost close to 18 years ago or so, she was kind enough to, you know, give a little bit of guidance via email with me. Not too much. I would doubt that she even knows who we are, but. I certainly did reach out to her as soon as I found that little book. And, uh, you know, I, I absolutely understand this is an arrangement, Chad and I. Understood. And by the way, I do want to introduce my special co-host here tonight, Amy Martin. I believe she is on the line. Amy, are you there? Hello, 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 everybody. Yes. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Nice to meet you both. Thank you. Nice to meet you also. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, she'll be here to help. Uh, keep things uh, sane. She'll be the voice of reason tonight since I, <laughs> you know, I She'll will. She'll be the sober right. voice. I got it. Exactly. She's here to babysit, in other words. <laughs> so when you were doing the ESP test, were they uh, showing you like the Zinner cards? Okay, that sounds familiar, that word. Like I said, I've forgotten the word, but they were just, uh, and it's a very brief memory, it, but it is my first. And I've clung to it all my life because it's, you know, my first. But what I remember is, you know, this dude with a long white lab coat on in a hospital environment holding up a a big white card that had a symbol on the front of it or, you know, what he was looking at and asked me to identify or could I see it. And um, I believe it was a cross for whatever reason, that's what stays with me. But in all honesty, that's all I absolutely remember about that experience, and it's as if my lights go back out again. Um, because I have no memory of us moving from Colorado to the Midwest. I don't have any memory of the beginnings of my life in the Midwest. But then all of a sudden, you know, I'm in school, and I've got school records and friends and that seem to have memory that I don't have. So 
I'm very, very sketchy about all of that. And I only offer what I do remember. Right, right. Now, that hospital, Fitzsimmons Hospital, if I might, since it's been asked about again, uh, Fitzsimmons Hospital I discovered because I've never stopped. For the last 20 years, I have thrown myself in head first, becoming our little researcher of this family. You know, Chad leaves it to me because I can't quit. I don't stop trying to have answers and find others and what have you. But that hospital I discovered just stopped being known in that location only in the last couple years. So, I mean, I was being tested in the sick and it was still a working environment up until just a couple years ago. And I believe it still is, only it's been relocated and I'm not sure to where. And then the last I'll offer about that situation is that um, I, again, it was a very brief context, my communication with this gentleman, but a man by the name of Grant Cameron, if that's a familiar name to any of you, he's, you know, become quite a name in this field, in the UFO field. Right. Right. And so, you know, his, his beginnings, my understanding, was primarily about presidents and UFOs and government secrets, so on and so forth. Somebody suggested that I contact or that him and I speak. So I am not tech savvy at all. I can barely send an email. Oh. <laughs> right. right. I'm right. just, you know, just really lousy with it. So I sent a, I sent him a very brief email and I'll, I'll give him this. He was kind enough to at least respond to me because many times I've been completely ignored by the well-known folks in this field. But anyhow, he was kind enough to respond to me and basically just told me that I was out of luck if I thought I was ever going to get those records. Oh, my. Um, yes. Uh, Grant Cameron, he's supposed happen. to be on the program here. Mm. It's it's funny you mentioned his name. Yeah, he's a very nice individual. He has right. excellent work out there. And uh, one thing you mentioned about the whole UFO community, the the top, the ones that are most popular, they seem to... Well, be the ones who least care what what someone without a name has to say. I'm just being honest. Right. Right. You Unfortunately, know, I've, been, I've been 20 years at this, so I'm I'm not naive any longer. Good. And I make sure I, I do my best to help Chad not be either. So yeah, yes. that's that's Lot, lots of lots of uh, wolf tickets being sold by certain individuals in the ufo community right. it's terrible really because it really gives right. the ufo community a bad name right right unfortunately yeah. yeah well he was as i said he was kind enough to uh at least kind of say good luck but no luck you know you that won't happen kind of language and and as appreciative as i am to him and again wouldn't expect him to remember me from nothing i still don't accept that because i just i can't afford to accept that there's no possibility to ever understand what any of this is about. So far, we haven't gotten it, but I keep trying. Have any of you had any sort, some sort of hypnosis done to try to bring back some of these memories you might have been uh, missing here? Right. So we we found somebody. Uh, our as they call it, our main event happened to us in '97, where there were three of us involved. We found somebody. Several, uh, about 2002, I guess, you know, that many years later, four or so years later, five years later, to do regression for Chad. So he has a full account, for the most part, of what we expect is his experience that particular night the three of us were involved. There's a possibility, but only a possibility, that our friend that was taken with us 
could have possibly been with him, but um, I'm nowhere in his account at all in his regression. And I'm the only one out of the three of us that had that event that seems to have memory of what I call the in-between. So I have no memory of the beginning of that night, and I have no memory of being returned home the next day, but I have a full memory of in-between. And in my memory, Chad and our friend are not involved in my experience. So, And then our friend, who refuses to go public, probably very wisely, she chose... Oh, is this Christine? Right. Okay, yes. She's chose to, you know, to stay private from the standpoint of not, not wanting to get on radio with us or what have you. But I asked her several years after, we're still connected all these years later, long distance. And I asked her several years after the event in 97, if I could get her portion of it in writing. And so she wrote, you know, what she could remember. And I have to tell you, it's extremely vague. And she admits it, that it seems to just be fading away from her as time passes. But her experience is very different than Chad and I. So all three of us seem to have a very different experience that night. And but, so yeah. anyhow, we got regression done for Chad. Okay. I I found somebody that was considered world-renowned who I paid a lot of money to, you know, cash money to, to not have it happen. It did not happen. And, uh, it was a very bad experience for me, for both of us, me in particular. But I will say that at the end of that encounter, even though I wasn't able to be regressed, we did have, I did have some very strange, high strangeness happen, uh, you know, at the end of that whole experience. So if time, I'll share that with you. Um, but so far I haven't, I have, and I haven't tried again because I'm trying to handle this very differently. We'd also like, again, for anybody out there that's interested to know that the woman that regressed Chad, even though they had a nice rapport, it would seem that this woman was not trained specifically in this area. So every time Chad was, because I heard the tape of the regression, every time Chad would mention, start talking about different encounters he was having, this woman would seem to become very afraid, the therapist, and she would move Chad into another experience. So there's just so much more still in there that, but he has a lot to share, but there's still a lot more in there. I'm positive that, you know, was not allowed to come out. Understood. And by the way, Chad, when I had asked you for an image of yourself, you sent me a photo of yourself, um, essentially inside a, some sort of shop. Can you explain that photo for me just a little bit? What was going on in there? Uh, I, believe that may be the shop where Alta works. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, that's, uh, uh, she, she, uh, sells our book for us there and also, um, it's in the so French she, quarter. Yeah, it's in the French quarter and, uh, uh, but, uh, she had me come in to, the owner Alta, of the shop, the owner of the shop had me come in to take a picture to promote the book sale. Nice. Yes. I was just curious. It looked like a very nice little establishment there. Very interesting, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, it's very nice. Lots of crystals and gems and fossils and all that kind of yummy stuff. Very nice, yes. Let, let's go into that that faithful night now when you were abducted. My goodness, how scary. Well, okay, so we moved to the French Quarter in 95. We have, um, you know, just again, obviously for time's sake, we have all kinds of high strangeness take place from the moment we moved to the French Quarter, to both Chad and I, in the form of ghosties, time slips, 
a possibility of a Virgin Mary-like apparition, uh, and then some, just all kinds of high strangeness. So then this is taking place in 95. Now we moved to 1997. As we mentioned earlier, I was about to turn 40 and, you know, telling the world that would hear me how excited I was. And uh, as we mentioned again, that was not to be. My mom was living in Little Rock, Arkansas at the time. She was in poor health. She wanted to move to the quarter. We wanted her to move here. We pre-rented her a mother-in-law cottage. And again, as I say, it was not meant to be because that's the day that she passed. It was on my 40th birthday. So Chad and I have to fly long distance and handle that insanity. Um, it was extremely difficult for me beyond measure. And it was very hard on Chad. We returned back to the quarter. I threw myself into work, but I, I was dying inside. I was just so sad and I was angry and I was in shock. And so about three months after my mother's passing, which was in May, we're in the anniversary right now, Michael, as I think about it. Really? September. And this is when we're positive this happened to us Uh-oh. in 97. So how wonderful to be sharing it with you. It, it really is. And I thank you both for being here tonight. And speaking of your mother, um, I'm curious now. It seems like there's some sort of a link between um, families being abducted in the past. Was your mother possibly an abductee? You know, again, very hard to say. I'm, I'm just not able to answer those questions because Understood. As, I, as okay. I've been stressing, she had a lot of mystery. And many things that I had been told by her in my earlier life, I discovered were not necessarily true. So uh, this is it started causing a rift between her and I where I couldn't trust. I didn't trust her. And yet I loved her beyond measure. And it was just a very perplexing role that I was living. So, you know, so much of it, I'm sorry, I cannot answer. That's okay. Um, but so essentially, you know, just sticking with the, the event, as you asked us to about, you know, what happens in 97, it's September now. And uh, our friend, Christine, we called we call her that in the book. She is a new hire in the shop that I'm working in. At the time, I'm working for a family-owned business that had started their business in 1929, in the French Quarter, they'd been in business 70 years by the time I came on board. They were extremely well-established, well-run, uh, kept it in the family, tightly, um, you know, uh, orchestrated and what have you. They had hired her as a uh, potential management for this shop. She, at the time, was 24, Chad was 30, and I had just turned 40, just to give everyone the perspective of age. But I've always been ageless. so. Maybe never having children, I'm not sure. Whatever it is, you know, age has never really meant much to me. So the moment that they hired her in the shop, I felt like I, you know, it was one of those, I felt like I'd known her eons, forever. Right, it, right, it right. It just didn't seem like an age difference. It was just, she was familiar. I, I just felt like I'd known her forever. Yeah, and, sometimes uh, we have those people that come into our lives for certain, and it seems like we've known them our entire lives. Right. Yep. That was, and it was, it was very, uh, it was very needed at that time, especially with the pain I was, you know, suffering over my mom's passing, what have you. So she asked me if I wanted to go out one evening after work and have dinner and drinks in the quarter. And I accepted and I said, let's call Chad. I know he'd want to join us. At the time now, we only lived a couple blocks from our shop. So Chad got cleaned up and he met us over at the shop. 
she had the keys to the shop. So this is how how we know what time our evening started. It started at 9.30 because the three of us step out of the shop and she locks. Now, the French Quarter is only about 13 blocks, I believe, square, something like that, size-wise. So our intention is she'd never been married, sorry, and had nor, nor had she had children either. So, again, we didn't answer to anyone, and we're just going to have a spontaneous night out. We're just no plans. We're going to stop wherever we feel like, do as we please. So we're going to start at one end of the quarter and just work our way across it. And this is all done on foot. So we start at the famous Bourbon Street, but I'll mention that the moment we stepped outside of the shop, I took note of it, and then I remember making mention of it and them kind of agreeing with me that it felt weird outside. It felt strange, like the energy was off. And I don't know how to describe that any better than what I just said to you, but that certainly I remember taking note of it. Just felt weird. It felt off, like 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 heavy, something in the air. Well, we start off on Bourbon Street. We're going to just walk all, you know, Bourbon is just runs. I don't know if you've ever been to New Orleans or the quarter, but Bourbon starts at one end and just, you know, straight across mm-hmm. to the other end of the quarter, and that's what we're going to do. Well, again, for this, you know, speeding the story along without all the details, right. the, whole, the whole night was bizarre, meaning that from the very moment that we got closer to Bourbon Street, we all noticed there's no people. There were a few stragglers. I mean, there were a few humans, but, I mean, there were no people. And it was like, where is everybody? This is weird. Where is everybody? Again, for folks who don't know the quarter, it's kind of a nonstop party. It's a 24-7, even when it's slow. It's still, there's always conventions. There's always something going on, but not on this night. This night, it's it's vacant. Now, we stop at three different locations across the quarter. And I'm telling you that in each of these locations, didn't matter how huge it was, how small it was. Didn't matter if it was just a bar or if it was bar, restaurant, dance club. There were no people. There was, if there was rest, if there were restaurants, there were no wait staff. There were no patrons. There were no, there were no, there were no people. There was nobody except one person at each location that was either a manager or a bartender. So by the time we get across the border, we've already gone through one irritation after another, it's like, where is everybody? And there's no answers. And there's nobody to ask. And so we'd had nothing to drink. We'd had no drugs. And we've said this time and time again. To the best of our knowledge, there was nobody around to drug us because at that right. point that would have been welcomed on my part. I would have welcomed that. <laughs> and, and by the way, oh, for the what? for the sake of conversation, I'm sorry to cut in, but for the sake of conversation, uh, these aren't false memories, right? Absolutely not in my understanding, no. Okay, okay I, I just have to cut in real quick. I mean, Go you, ahead, you can't Amy. really ask somebody whether or not they've had a false memory or not. You you honestly don't know if you've had a false memory. Right. And, that's and, that's and, just and, being and, technical and, there. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that has been brought up before. You know, did we step out of the did we step out of that how out of the shop and go straight into, you know, something else. And again, or, we've always been consistent to try to leave that to everyone else's thoughts or exploration because we have no answers. You know, again, I have never, we've been interviewing, I would say, probably since 2011. And I have, we were asked to go public. We never wanted to go public with any of this and never intended a book, ever. Understood, but yes. That question came from a private message on Twitter. They were Wanting to know, so I, I had to throw it right. out there for them. You know, they are a rumbunctious oh, crowd. Grateful. 
Oh yeah, we know. We love we the, love we questions. Lo- we love questions because it it gets you thinking. And we've never had enough. But you know, our point is is again for anybody kind enough to hear us. We never. I have never used the word alien, abducted, um, uh, ET. I've never used any of this language. This is what has always been kind of inserted. In uh, I have an object in my upper arm from this night. Now everybody else calls this an implant. The I've implant, right? I've purposely from the beginning referred to it as an unknown, and I have reasons for that. And when I'm asked, you know, we tried to the best of our ability to stay consistent and just give it as we experienced it. But it certainly was the twilight zone. Let me assure you. Yeah. It 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 absolutely was the twilight zone, whatever that means that we were experiencing that night. So if I might, then just you know, again for the purposes of of what we do know or what we think we know or what we think we remember, um, no alcohol, no drugs, and as I said, to the best of our knowledge, nobody to drug us. Right. And then um, we get to the last location. It's as weird as all the rest of it. And we just, I, Chad and I walk away from our friend for a moment. I say to Chad, I just want to go home. I am so bored. I just want to go home. And I feel myself starting to sink again. You know, again, you know, the loss of mom and what have you. So over it, bored. Yeah, we're over it and bored. I sit down on a stoop about half block down from that corner, that last corner location that we went to. Uh, there's a stoop. I sit down on the stoop. Chad's standing over me. And then that's the last thing the three of us seem to collectively remember is 11 o'clock. We're 930 to 11, crossing the French Quarter from one end to the other. And uh, and that's the last thing the three of us collectively remember. The next thing I know, it's the next morning. I'm sitting up in my living room. I'm rubbing my arms. My, I didn't wake up. I I came to. Very different than waking up. I came to and my eyes popped open. And as I said, you know, I'm rubbing my arms. My eyes pop open. I'm in my house and the sun is blaring through my window. And I cannot begin to tell anybody the terror, the shock, the what the trying to watch my language. (laughs) Yes. Have I just been, have I just gone through? Because I have this very acute memory or something that is, you know, very prominent in my mind as I'm coming to. And instantly, where's Chad and where's our friend? Oh, my God. You know, because I'm sitting in that room by myself. So this is all happening to me instantly. I, this is happening instantaneous. I got I, I to be honest with you. I've had a couple of nights like that myself where I woke up not knowing what happened. But that's for other reasons and a whole different right. story. Right. Yeah. Right, and, right. And, and, and us, too. I mean, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. It happened. Yeah, I mean, we lived in the we, we lived, we in, lived in the French Quarter. You know that. Yeah. That, you know, this was different. You know, you this didn't. So different. You did, there right. was, we knew that we hadn't been. Right, right. You know, we knew we hadn't been doing drugs. So to wake up and go, okay, what well, happened? Well, now Chad woke up. See, I well, want to clarify. Myself wake I up. came too. Mm-hmm. It's just so different. It's just so different because yeah. again, I came too. And uh I'm having all this insanity happening to me at once. Plus, I'm feeling something in my upper arm that was not there. Right. To the best of my knowledge the night before. Oh, that's creepy, by the way. Yeah, creepy. It really is. Thanks. It really I is. I mean, it's, I'm 20 years later recounting this to you, and every time I do it, it it's beyond creepy. It never ceases being creepy. Yeah. 
So mm-hmm. I happen to see, you know, I have a visual through my, my townhouse where I can see my bedroom and I see a big lump in my bed. The blankies are pulled up over, you know, the head or whatever. I'm praying that's a body and that that lump belongs to me. But I'm only accounting for one lump. You know, we've got a friend that we're on a corner with, and now where is she? And I'm not even sure if that lump belongs to me because I'm in the other end of the house losing my mind trying to figure out what the... So I get up off the daybed. I'm starting to beeline towards the lump, but my bathroom happens to be right there. So now I'm like, what the... This in my arm. What is this in my arm? Well, I go in the bathroom. I have the most bizarre experience in the bathroom with my arm. I finally deal with that as much as I can. And now I got to get to the lump. So I come out of the bathroom. Well, thank the heavens the lump has moved and it's the, the lump does belong to me. It's Chad. He's out of bed by now and he's moving. He's beeline into me while I'm beeline into him. Now, I'm expecting him to tell me something. You know, you better tell me something because this is pure insanity. But I can see instantly in Chad's face and his eyes, he's lost. I know instantly he can't tell me nothing. So now I'm going through this instant emotion of, oh, my God, what the? Right. So then I. Right. What did you first first initially think that was, that whole lump? Who would know? I mean. If you heard my memory, you know, my memory of that night, I'm, I'm coming out of this memory to this now lump in my bed. And, and again, and I can only see one lump. It, last right. I knew I was with two people. So I, I just expressing it to you exactly as I experienced it and that, and that insanity that was happening to me. So then Chad and I connect and, you know, Chad's, silently pleading with me to tell him how we got home the night before. And I'm telling him, you know, I'm needing him to tell me. And then I'm also like shoving my arm at him like, Chad, my arm, what in the, is in my arm? Right. What, my arm, right? So Chad walks around me. And uh, as I've mentioned before in the past, I'm too busy dealing with the front trauma of my body to not take the time to check out my whole body. So I don't see the back of my body. I'm only dealing with the front of my body. This object is in my top, top of my upper arm on my left arm. And that's all I'm dealing with in that bathroom until I get to chat. Right. And, and by, the, have- by the way, just to cut you off really, I'm sorry to cut you off really quickly here, but I, I just uh, sent a link to the chat room of the x-ray of whatever that was in your arm. Right. Right. So. Uh, we'll have Chad share with you what he saw when he walked around. Right. Yeah, I also saw, like, four very, very long fingerprints, and they went all the way around her upper arm, around, like, her muscle area, uh, as if somebody was either holding her from behind or, you know, maybe two people holding her from one on each side of her, something like that. Uh, again, these... um these bruises didn't last long. You know, they were gone within a few days or within almost 24 hours, really. They were really light bruise. Uh, but, uh, again, the, it was just like somebody with very, very long bruise because, they, again, they wrapped all the way around her arm. And, and if I might, we'll mention at this point, for folks that have asked us in the past and 
And again, please know we, we so appreciate questions. We, we so appreciate it. Um, we have, we have very little answers, but, uh, for people who've asked us in the past, did we get pictures? No, uh, no. I want folks to try to understand I'm going through absolute insanity inside of myself. And it's all instantaneous. Does, does this bother you, by the way, talking about the story? Does it make you a little anxious, a little nervous, just bringing up all, all these uh, things, by the way, Alta? I don't believe it does. I mean, it, 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 it may sound that way because the experiences were, I'm expressing it as I, because I'm going back into right, it. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. But no, I, you know, for us, once we were asked to be public, uh, as I said, it was never our intention. But it certainly feels cathartic because the further I'm getting along into this research and all, I have to honestly admit, I know less now than I thought I did then. You know, it's quite amazing that I just don't find answers. So for folks who think they have the answers or believe they have the answers, I say good for you. But that's certainly not my story. And I keep speaking because we'd like our voice heard. And also others out there. So quick question. I'm looking, I'm taking a look at this, uh, what appears to be a radiographic image. Um, I guess that's your arm. Is that correct? Right. Mm-hmm. That's my and left that's on arm. orbducted yep. in the French quarter. I'm, I'm just trying to see, um, I guess exactly where this object is supposed to be. Can you kind of give us an idea? So one of the x-rays, I think the picture is very faint. One of those x-rays, that picture should be fairly clear. You see what looks fairly mundane, or to me it looks mundane, but it is definitely a separate object than the body mass. It's a white orb-looking, speaking of orb, it's roundish, oval, white, circular object. And it's between my elbow. The problem we have with where it is is that it seems, now please hear my language. It right, right. Seems, it seems to move, meaning... Okay. I, and I can kind of, ex- I could explain that looking at the imaging. I mean, it, to me, it just, it looks like a combination of muscle and, and fascia. Okay. No, there's a, there's an actual little round. It, it looks like a chiclet. Like, <laughs> well, it's not square yeah, though. Yeah, it's yeah. more oh, okay. round. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. Okay. This, this, yeah. uh, it's, it's like a oh, tiny oh. little round, um, God. right thing that's above your arm. It's yeah. it's between the elbow and the shoulder, almost mid space between the elbow and the shoulder. And it's um time there'll be times where it will seem to stand out in my arm like a big bug bite, where you can see a lump where the skin is actually pushing. And then there'll be times where it will seem to bury itself all the way down to the bone. Well, yikes. only I know it's there. It, it is a yikes. It, yeah. it absolutely is a yikes. That kind of reminds me of Roger Lear. And it's because of Dr. Lear I got those x-rays. Oh, did you? My he goodness. He was my original contact. And oh. he, he was who I was. I was only going to work with him. Actually, to be honest with you, the only person in the world that I ever had any interest in working with was Dr. Mack, Dr. John Mack. John Mack. At Harvard. Right. right. Because Dr. Mack was not only a medical doctor but a, but a psychiatrist. And I felt like that was the direction I needed to go. And uh, as I was trying to make arrangements to get there, he was killed. And so I was really at a loss. And then I discovered this crazy book at a bookstore in Alabama called 
Alien in the Scalpel, and I could not believe that there was such a title on a book written by an actual doctor. I just was in shock. So I bought the book immediately and, you know, took it home, and I saw this was back in 2002, I believe, 2001, and I, again, in my feeble way, was able to make contact with Dr. Lear long distance. Oh, so you did get a, get a hold of uh, Dr. Lear. Well, it was brief. He he requested the x-rays. Um, we could write books on Whoa. just the experiences we were put through over these x-rays. It was unbelievable what we had to go through. Unbelievable. And I got the x-rays. I got them sent to Dr. Lear, long distance. He's in California, of course, and at the time we were in Alabama. Nice, yeah. He got the first x-ray. He saw enough to say, I want a second picture to alleviate artifacts. I said to him in an email, Dear Dr. Lear, you have no idea what we've been put through. Can you give us further guidance? And he, in a very brief manner, as doctors will do, I used to work for doctors. I know how they are. He said basically, you know, that I needed to follow through with that second x-ray or he basically would forget we were having this conversation. So I understood I had to get that second picture. We went through unbelievable hell the second time to get the second x-ray and before I could get the second x-ray sent to Dr. Lear, he chose to not work with us. So He's a podiatrist, or he was a podiatrist. Right. He's passed he's on also, since. Right. He also, you know, and it was very hard for me to accept this, and it still is, he was the only game in town as well of removing these objects and supposedly studying. Um, I could not find anybody else, and I tried like crazy to find somebody else to help us, to work with us. Once I discovered, you know, again, Dr. Lear had his reasons. We've tried not to out people publicly in any of these interviews about what's happened. I do it all the time. Right. Don't it's, worry. And he can't. I mean, since he's a doctor or was a doctor, <laughs> it would have been illegal for him to have done that. I'm sorry to have done. To have uh, talked about any of his patients in public. Oh, no, she's saying that we've never said anything about. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Right. Well, what I meant was like it would have been illegal for him to have talked yeah. publicly oh, yeah. about any of his uh, patients who right. had not given any kind of prior consent uh, for study or for media release. Right. Well, all it came down to was Dr. Lear was going to be at a conference that Chad and I lived fairly close to, and we'd never been to a UFO conference before, so we decided okay, well, this will work out perfect. We're going to go to a conference. We'll meet Dr. Lear, and I'll hand-deliver him the second x-ray, and this will be perfect. He'll see my arm. He'll understand once he touches my arm that this is not uh, organic. And uh, before that could happen, whoever was putting this conference on decided to drop Dr. Lear as one of their main speakers, a paid speaker. So Dr. Lear asked me, long distance, if I would raise a boycott for this conference. I told him, you know, basically, I'm so sorry that this has happened to you, but I'm a little nobody who knows no one, and uh, I'm just so sorry that this has happened and, and that I, I'm not of any service like this, and there was no more contact. That's what happened. He just, at that point, I guess he chose to not deal with us any longer, so it went nowhere. So is it still um, prominent in your arm? I mean, do you notice it? Yes. Does it bother you on a day-to-day basis? Yes. Oh, so you probably it, it have does, it checked. I mean, that's yeah, right. Regardless of what you believe, you know, that's to me right. that would sound like a health concern. You need yeah. to have it 
maybe checked by someone who is, you know, just regardless of, you know, just don't go to the doctor necessarily and say, I believe I have an alien implant in my arm. Um, I would just go and say, I have this lump in my arm. What the heck is it? And then, and then they'll look at it. And if they okay, determine well, that you have something completely different in your arm, they'll probably find that, uh, in surgery. But I mean, that's, that's something serious. You know, don't, don't wait around about that. Right. So if I might then, again, I've, you know, 20 years of this, I'm, I'm just very studied and well aware. When I said it bothers me, it's only from the standpoint that it's there. It doesn't no hurt pain? me in any way. Oh, okay. No, not okay. at all. And thank God, thank the God. That's true. Right. Thank the gods I can't feel it move if it is in fact moving. Um, okay, I, sure. I'm, I'm sure just, I I'm not concerned from, that. you know, I, I worry about everybody. So <laughs> I say that, well, you know, with, uh, I say that with good intents. You know, I, I don't just say absolutely. that like as a skeptic, you know, coming at you. I, I mean that because I, I care. I, and we're so grateful. Believe me, we are so grateful. But since you care, I'm, that's what I'm so thrilled about is that you care, that you are open, you know, to hear this. I've had another experience. I have another object that's in my wrist. It's very different than the first object. You have a second object? object, I do. Now, the object in my wrist won't take an x-ray, but I decided because of all of the insanity that Chad and I were put through over these first x-rays, several years later, I found a chiropractor in the city of Birmingham. We lived outside of Birmingham, Alabama at the time. found a chiropractor in Birmingham that was willing to x-ray my arm and the object in my wrist. So the object in my arm, the upper arm, took the pictures just like it always had, but the object in my wrist never would take a picture. She told me that that didn't surprise her at all. Um, now we start talking MRIs because this is all the suggestions and whatever, but I'd like to suggest back to folks who say this, we're talking thousands of dollars. If you have no insurance, I have no insurance. But even if I did, what I've discovered in all these years so far, I haven't found anybody who cares. To put myself through all of this insanity and cost, I found nobody who cares. To be fair, so, it's also hard to find somebody to, that cares sometimes when you have a legitimate issue. Like, uh, they take for instance, there are, there are a lot of women out there who have a disease called endometriosis and it doesn't show up on any imaging. It's really hard sometimes for them to even get anybody to care about it. So I, I completely understand what you went through. Right. So anyhow, the, the object in my wrist, uh, we had a friend in Alabama that was, uh, you know, she was an older student. She was in her 40s when she decided to go to ultrasound school. She is just graduating with ultrasound. She is an ultrasound tech. She's got a little portable ultrasound machine, and she travels. She's a traveling tech. Well, she lives a couple hours from us at the time in Alabama. Now, she knows about the object in my upper arm. She's heard us repeat our experiences, what have you. She's a friend. But, you know, I believe everybody has their limits. I certainly don't blame anybody. She, all of a sudden, one afternoon, calls me up, and she happens to be in my neighborhood. How convenient. I mean, we're two hours apart. Right. She's got her little machine, and she wants to come by and check my wrist out. Well, I'm thrilled. Um because I realized that she's she's doing this out of the goodness of her heart. But she also is checking to see if I'm crazy. And she admits this to me. And so she gets to my house and she has me lay down on my couch and she begins to scan my wrist. 
And her words are, I heard a little bit of a gasp out of her, and that's she's not a kind of female that gasps. She's not that kind of chick. And uh, she indicates to me, I couldn't do, I couldn't write a report for a doctor if I had to, Alta, because whoever, whatever put that there, it's there. She said, you can see it, but it won't cast a shadow. That's impossible. Now, I'm only repeating to you her words to me as I remember them. And what I can also offer to you is she stopped being our friend. Stop being your friend? Well, she went away as many do. How dare she? That. <laughs> What's her problem? You know, people are afraid. That's right. They're afraid. That's true. And we, you know, we so understand that. It's hard, it's painful, but we understand. People are afraid. And people want answers, and we don't have any. By the way, so, there was a question in the chat room from one Jim Mallard. He's asking if you have ever mm-hmm. broken your arm before these x-rays. No. No. Simply no. No, I've never broken my arms. Understood. I've never had any kind of anything that I'm aware of. This object in the upper arm, now the one in the wrist, again, seems to be different. There's no awareness of it in the wrist at all, other than I can't wear anything around my wrist now, my left wrist. Uh, any kind of bracelet, any, any, I stopped wearing watches when I was little. Those stopped working early on in my life. I think Chad also, if I'm not mistaken, has had the same issue with watches. So we avoid all that. Uh, but I can't wear any kind of bracelets or any kind of ornaments on this arm because it, it almost caused like a throb, like a deep throb. But other than that, never know it's there. It's not like you can see it or anything like that. The object in the upper arm, you only know it's there. I mean, you wouldn't know it's there, but the only time it's obvious is, as I said, if it's standing out and it creates like a lump, like a bug bite, like a mosquito bite. But you can you can feel it. You can you can squeeze or pinch her skin when it's mm-hmm. close to the the, uh, the surface. You can and you can feel the dimension. It, it, sometimes it's a little sharp, almost like sometimes a, it feels like it's going to actually poke right through the skin. And again, there's no pain at ew. all to any of this. But my point is, is you can't look at my arm and see it. You can't see any kind of entry wound. There's no scar. There's no nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, you might want to get get that checked out if you can. Well, I mean. Definitely get that looked at again. Yeah, I would. I'd certainly get it looked at again. Yeah, you just never know. Right. Yeah, I've, I've had my experiences with, with things of that nature. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would do it. So walk us through this this day after um, you had that missing time so you woke up in uh your flat or your apartment uh is that correct right and then uh there was just you you were just you you had no idea basically how you got there and then uh she has this uh lump in her arm what happened after that well we sat in terror for two days trying to figure out where our friend was there were two days that i was off work those two days chad happened to work for himself so we did, as they say, we hunkered down, and we were afraid to come out of the apartment. We just absolutely stayed in our apartment, closed in, just trying to get a grip. And uh, it took two days. So I went back to work, and my friend happened to be at work. She took it very differently than the way that Chad and I were experiencing it. In her case, she admitted to me that she was, I'm, I mean, I'm losing my mind, but I'm trying to be a controlled chaos. And she's just as smooth and cool and just made it real clear to me that she knows something happened to us. She knew that the night had started off weird. She remembered that there were no people out there or any of the places we stopped at. 
and she knows that something happened, but that that was good enough for her just to accept that she was having this experience and couldn't explain it, and it's good enough. Because she chose to take a completely different route with it. She's gone on since then to become a, she went to college and got a degree in environmental science. She's very much uh, earth-connected in the goodness of earth, saving earth, um, the sciences of earth. She's always been dedicated to children, uh, the wellness of children. So, you know, this is her direction in life. And she accepts that something bizarre happened, and that's been enough for her. Uh, again, for Chad and I, it's been a whole different story. Right. And, Chad, you haven't really begun to uh, detail your encounter with these blue beans, you said, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Um, I had regression done uh, a few years after our experience, after we had moved to Alabama. And um, that's when my you know, when I had the regression, I came, I, I talked, to, I, I, I met my blue being. So what drove you to seek somebody for that particular type of therapy? I mean, what did, did you have this feeling that maybe that's, that something in particular might have happened to you? Like, did you have something in mind already? Not necessarily in mind. No, I was totally, totally blank. Uh, you know, I mean, I, the last thing I remember is 11 o'clock on the corner. The next thing I know, I wake up in bed the next morning at 9 o'clock. So I had this. Now, Alta had an experience, and, you know, like she said, she didn't remember leaving the corner or how she got home, but she did have uh, a memory of uh, an experience. So I knew something bizarre had happened, and we had had um, gone to it was like in a public library somewhere there in in Birmingham, and uh, the, a, a lady was doing regression, you know, just kind of like past life regression kind of. Thing. Wait, they were doing this inside of a library. Yeah, it was kind of a closed meeting, you know. It was kind of, you know, where... This woman was selling a book, and yeah, she'd come out of New York City, author. and it just happened to be... We just happened to catch it by accident. Yeah, it was just... We caught it by accident, and we went in, and and I I, I believe I was regressed, you know. I mean, I wasn't regressed for, for this situation, you know, for, you know, our experience. But I had gone into, you know, what I believe was a past life, and so when this happened, it it kind of got out to and I thinking, hey, you know. And then we did research on on some things, and you know, said, well, maybe this is something that I could do to see if you know we can, you know, if I could have some memory of you know what had happened to us that night. Right, 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 right. So these experiences you both had, I, I can imagine, were very traumatic for the both of you. Correct. Well, in my part, I mean, traumatic in, you know, what the heck happened and all that. Now, in my regression, I was never scared or harmed or probed or, you know, any of that kind of horror movie kind of thing. Thank God you weren't probed, Chad. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. You know, it was a total, you know, beautiful experience. So, you know, I, I don't have like, you know, nightmares about it or anything like that. Right. You know, it's not nothing, you know, traumatic as far as a negative thing happening. And in my myself. experience, in my memory, it was remarkable until the very, very end of it. And only at the very end 
before I come to the next morning in the house, I is the only time I remember feeling afraid at the very last millisecond of the experience. But prior, you know, the whole memory is, some of it is ecstatic, some of it's bliss feeling, some of it is so beautiful, I can't find words for it. Um, a lot of mystery, obviously, and then at the very end, I felt a sense of terror. And uh, and then the next thing I know, I'm coming to the next morning with this strange handprints and this object in my arm. What what about sleep? How how are both of you sleeping? Do you have any any memories of any any of these things pop up in your during your dreams rather? Uh I don't. Yeah, nothing like Nothing like that? No, uh uh-uh. now my, my sleep patterns are are have always been interrupted. I have a hard time sleeping and always have in terms of, you know, long periods of time, but um I don't have nightmares, I don't have anything like that. So admittedly, um, while I, I consider myself more of a skeptic, my own father has had experiences where he has seen uh, particular things out hunting and uh, just objects and whatnot. And uh, upon seeing stuff like that, he could not wake up on time for about two weeks. And he was a, a school teacher at a new school back mm-hmm. then uh, at the time. I wasn't around, but just hearing mm-hmm. his stories, it's... it's uh, for him, it was a pretty traumatic experience. Mm. You know, for certainly the experiences are in the beginning uh, with this object in my arm. Again, if folks would remember, this has been 20 years ago, this first object. In the beginning, I was raging. I At one point, I was going to get a bottle of whiskey and a big old butcher knife and cut this thing out of my arm. Jesus. I mean, I have gone through. Yeah, I mean, wow. I've gone through every crazy emotion imaginable. Uh, but Chad and I also, if there is such a thing as logic involved in any of this, which is hard to find, we also had to contemplate what would happen to me. And also, whatever or whoever was responsible for this, were they going to put me through this again to put it back kind of thinking? You know, all this kind of thinking was going on inside of me and, and him and I trying to deal with this. Um, so it has been the full range of, emotions, but I might add, it's been more difficult with humans than it's been the experiences. The human factor has been very difficult for us um, in trying to either, you know, from the beginning get help and then find others and what have you. It's been very difficult. Right. Trying to convince others of these happenings will definitely be difficult for those who are just completely skeptical of the whole experience unless they have gone through the experience themselves. Um, by the way, can you tell me a little bit about the name of this book and why you chose this title? Well, uh, a, a little part of my regression, what came out is we're standing on that stoop. Uh, you know, again, it's about 11 o'clock. Our friend had, uh, come down to mid-block and joined us, and I noticed this bright, bright light coming from around the corner. So I get the girl's attention, we walk around the corner, and there's this orb, and it's probably about 12 foot in diameter, it's about 15 foot off the ground, and it's about a half a block down the street. And we get there, we look at it for, you know, Probably just a few seconds. I say 30 seconds, but it probably wasn't even that long. It was maybe 10 seconds at the most. 
and it just comes at us and just engulfs us. It orb ducks. So we kind of, you know, did that word play where we brought the orb in that took us and what people call abduction, and we just kind of combined it and, and, and came up with the orb duck. Understood. And since this event, have either one of you experienced any strange lights in the sky, Any anything of that nature? Uh, we both have. We absolutely have um, on several occasions. But most recently, this last year, before Chad and I moved back to New Orleans, we left here in 2001. We've only returned this last year, so 15 years, you know, absent from this area. But we were living, we were traveling the Ohio Valley. Um, we're artisans as well, and we were traveling the Ohio Valley doing uh, metaphysical shows or, you know, UFO, only one or once or twice, any kind of UFO, anything, convention or what have you, but every weekend in a different location. And we were staying... Um, Around, uh, in Ohio, Mount, Serpent Mound. Serpent Mound. If you're, if you've ever heard of the Serpent Mound. Ohio's for lovers. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we had, uh, we were outside of this, what they consider a very sacred site called Serpent Mound at an, at a motorhome park, an RV camp. And we had a couple that had come to stay with us for this event in, uh, for this, you know, this, we were vendoring at this thing for the weekend. So this couple had driven to come and stay with us at the, at, in our motorhome and we call it our little love shack. And, uh, we had a full blown night of unbelievable events going on in the sky all night long. This was an all night long. This was kind of, we were kind of in a valley with the kind of mountains kind of around us. And, and it was from just, one horizon to the yeah, other. The, the sky was just beautiful and, and know. one, and one person that happened to be there, they both called themselves skeptics. He in particular, very skeptical. Right. Uh, she was having some strange experiences herself. So she was starting to lend and lean more into being open to, I don't know even what to call all of this that's been going on with us. If I might also add, if you ask me about lights in the sky, Chad's father and his wife, Chad's stepmother, they claim to have, now these folks will not speak about this at all. Oh. So this isn't, it this is them not a huh? conversation. You know, it's closed right. conversation in the family, but they did tell Chad that they are positive they saw the same shaped craft that Chad and I saw in 1995 in Louisiana. They saw the same shaped craft in Cancun, Mexico, for the new millennium. They were down there partying. And they they indicate that they saw the same identical crap. Now, again, these are people who, this isn't I'm trying to one-up you and my UFO is bigger than UF, your UFO kind <laughs> right. of, you know, people. Sure. These are people, yeah, this is not their they, choice of conversation. As a matter of fact, it was more my, my, my stepmother that, you know, my dad just kind of, you know, Shaking his head in agreement and everything, but really not wanting to talk about it at all. But so as we mentioned this part of it, then if I can just kind of cap that off with, I had with another friend, the most unbelievable, terrifying, I was positive we were dead, terrifying experience with what I call invisible Sasquatches. You know, I again, I baby the language because some of this has been so terrifying. 
Bigfoot in my backyard, in our backyard. Now, nobody wants to hear about any of that. Nobody believes me. And I'm not here to try to prove anything to anybody. Chad and I have never tried to prove anything because we don't know what to prove. We're just expressing and sharing what has happened to us and happening to us. So you, Chad's father, you, oh, go ahead, not only sorry. did they see the same craft, I just wanted to finish this off, not only did they claim to see the same craft several years later after we did in a whole other part of the world, but his dad and his adult brother had an up-close and personal encounter with a Bigfoot. Up-close and personal. Um, in the same general geographical area that I had my experience in my backyard. So, you know, there's so much more going to this than meets the eye, so much more than meets the eye about all of this in, in, in all levels of, again, I call it all high strangeness. Understood. And you saw a Sasquatch. It's just remarkable that you would actually see one of these things in your own backyard. Well, in my case, ours were invisible. And there were so many that it was, I was positive we were dead. That, that my friend and I were dead, um, that there was no stopping what was about to happen to us. And yet it was all sound and energy and mortifying. But Chad's father and his brother were driving down the highway. Um, if you care and you have time, we'll have Chad share it. It's a brief encounter, but it was an, it was a very personal encounter. Right. Go, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. We are definitely coming to a close. With the interview, but go ahead and share that story, Chad. Yeah, they were they were heading to Atlanta Airport. Uh, again, this is out from the Birmingham, Alabama area. So About a three they're across I twenty. Then yeah, they're right. they're they're crossing I twenty right. and they're going through the Talladega National Forest. It's just before you get uh, to the to Georgia the border State there. Line. Yeah, yeah, I know where exactly where that is. Live. Very wooded. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. very, I mean, it's the That's Talladega where, National Forest is huge. That's where I And, have my and there has been other reports by other people also that, from that area. But anyway, they're, they're driving down the highway. It's like just getting light. So I think his, his flight, he had an early morning flight out of Atlanta. So they're, they're heading that way and they, they see what they thought was a, uh, hitchhiker backpacker on the side of the highway you know with a, a guy kind of stooped down with his big backpack on and they said they get a little closer and they get a little closer and finally this thing stood up he said it was like seven eight foot tall full of hair and they said as they pass it it kind of turns on on his heels looks at him watches them kind of drive by, you know, I mean, they're looking eye to eye with this thing pretty much. And nobody and, else on the road. Yeah, there's nobody, you know, there's mm-hmm. not anybody else out on the road. They're, they they said they kind of look and he takes two or three steps and, and, and then, you know, disappears into the woods. But I mean, they're. I mean, he's hunched down on, on the highway side of the medium. I mean, yeah, the, he's right on the, the side of the road right there by mm-hmm. the guardrail. And they said that, you know, as they're driving by, he's right there. And waits and for them and stands up and looks at just them. Just kind of looks at them, watches them drive by, and, you know, steps off into the woods just like, you know, And again, probably off. will never be family because this is not something, yeah, you know, open but, to family discussion. 
as they say. So we feel blessed that they, you know, that they shared this with us. Yeah, I, right. I think the only reason they did is because we were so bored in, in telling stories that have happened to us and everything. So they go, well, you know, there was this time, you know, I would tell a lot of people things, you know, and then they would go, well, you know, there was this time. So I could understand yeah. that, by the way, since both my parents saw something above their home and my mother won't speak about what happened yeah. that night. She just right. will not mention it. She'll uh, look right. at you like you're crazy. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Michael, she, you know what right. that means. We need to get her on the show. Uh, trust <laughs> me, I'm trying my best. I'm trying. I'm, oh, that'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to do this, but... I'm going to have to cut you guys loose. We are running out of time here, and we're going to have to do a follow-up interview with, with the both of you here. Well, it sounds great. We, we we appreciate the time that you gave us, and we enjoyed we enjoyed the question. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. We thank both of you. Thank you so much for having us and, and being willing to hear us. And, and, and again, like Chad said, we love the question, so thanks again. No problem. And before I cut you loose, go ahead and plug anything you feel like promoting here oh well awesome uh you know you can you can find us on facebook uh or abducted in the french quarter uh you can if you if you care to purchase the book you can uh contact me direct through facebook and we can do the uh, paypal or we also sell them on etsy if you're in the french quarter or new orleans area you can come by where alta works at, at earth odyssey uh, it's a beautiful little shop that sells jewelry and, and also our book. Uh, and then October 19th, we'll be doing a book signing in the French Quarter. Uh, this is on the 800 block of Royal Street. It's called Gallery 2, and uh, it's going to be 6 to 9 on October 19th. And so please come. Yeah. So right. Yeah. Come on down. Go on down. We'd love down. for you to come. If, right. uh, you know, anybody has any questions, you can contact us through Facebook. If you, if, if you're an experiencer and just want to share your story and, and, you know, just need somebody to talk to that's not going to think you're crazy, you know, uh, uh, we, we always welcome that also. Very nice. I do want to thank both of you tremendously from the bottom of my heart for spending your time with us here. It's very well appreciated. Again, thank you. Thank you for everything in your show. And we'll certainly scream your praises and let the world know you exist. And we look forward to the future with you. Oh, I love that. Yes, I hope to continue this top talent bond with you, Chad, and Alta. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you again. Everyone have a good night. Mahalo. Me too. And that was our guest, Chad and Alta. Wonderful guest and Amy. I do thank you for being here. And if you want to hang around, Amy, you're you're more than, yeah, (laughs) I'll hang around. No problem. Just making sure you are on board here. And it is that time to go on a little break, perhaps go to the restroom if you need to, or get a cold uh, beverage like myself. I need to go and get another beer, Amy. It's very crucial. (laughs) I prefer Prosecco. So very cool. Very cool. So Amy, (laughs) hang around. We'll be right back with Mr. Jonathan Gray after the break. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. Michael Deacon. And welcome back to the program. I missed you. And I believe our second guest will be joining us here in a moment. 
I do want to say thank all, I thank all of you out there rather for still being here. I could still see most of you logged in here and that international audience hasn't dropped yet. Amazing. Uh, Amy, are you around? Yes, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Now I can. And it's almost time to bring on Jonathan Gray. Ooh. Right. International explorer, archaeologist, and author Jonathan Gray has traveled the world to gather data on ancient mysteries. Over the past 37 years, he has penetrated some largely unexplored areas, including parts of the Amazon headwaters. He also led expeditions to the bottom of the sea and to remote mountain and desert regions of uh, of the world, rather. I was going to say around the world. My goodness. You know, it would help if I actually took notes. I can't even believe I remembered that off the top of my head. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it is. I don't even know how I did that, Amy, but my goodness, I went into some weird mode right there. That is a very strange mode. I don't think <laughs> I don't know how memorized I, a bio forecast. I don't even know how how the F I did that, but uh, alcohol um, makes you do all sorts of weird things. Maybe. Right. Perhaps. Right. So let's bring on Jonathan Gray and see if he's alive. Hmm. Let's find out. So how's your week been? My week is fantastic. I really can't complain. I've been celebrating nonstop, and I believe now Jonathan Gray is here live and direct with us. Hello, Michael. Oh, Jonathan. With you. Oh, my goodness. It's been such a long time since we talked, Jonathan. I believe the last time we talked was way back in 2014 or 15. I can't believe, I, I can't remember exactly, but, um, when we talked, yeah, when we talked, Jonathan, it was under a completely different banner and now things are, are better than ever. Very good. Well, it's nice to be with you again. Hell yes. And by the way, Jonathan, I am joined here with a special co-host in Amy Martin. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Annie, is it? Amy. Amy. Nice speaking with you too, Amy. Thank you. Nice to speak to you as well. Yeah. So, Jonathan, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Well, um, I have been in, in archaeological work now for, well, close on 40, more than, more than that, years. Uh, first of, my first expedition was down into the unexplored headwaters over the Andes into the Amazon, uh, where natives were uh, killing one another at the time I was in there with blowpipes and poison darts and head shrinking was going on, shrinking head, human heads down to about the size of your fist, your clenched fist. And uh, then later on my work carried me elsewhere because I, was, I, was, I saw things in the Amazon that I couldn't believe. So I wanted to see if there was a worldwide pattern to what I had seen, and sure enough there was. And this opened up a huge can of new information that started to rewrite history. And I then eventually got into the Middle East, into Egypt, Israel, and Turkey. And what what I found there was mind-blowing. So um, I've been uh, lecturing on this worldwide uh, and uh, writing on it and producing DVDs and so on. And uh, very enjoyable. Have a lot of fun doing it. Oh, yes. And you traveled all around the world, Jonathan. And where would be your favorite location, if you can be biased for a moment here? Favorite location for, depending upon what you're looking for, um, there are some perhaps more beautiful locations, but my favorite is Israel and uh, into Egypt. Uh, what what I've been involved in there is absolutely uh, epoch-making and uh, 
uh, it's it's really upset everything as far as the establishment goes. So Egypt has been a big fascination for you then? Particularly the Red Sea. We've ah, been diving sea. on the seabed and found the remains of a huge army scattered along the seabed. Oh, wow. Right. That's really exciting. Yes, certainly. Oh, yes. yes. So at what depths and, are you finding this? Well, we're finding it in uh, the, the, the furthest dive out, any of our divers has gone down is uh, just a little less than 200 feet, but you don't you don't stay more than a few seconds at that depth. The fact is, uh, most of it's been found in in a range of 20 to 30 uh, feet deep, uh, because the the actual Red Sea uh, is is in two branches, as you know. There's the Suez Gulf and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Suez Gulf is very shallow. But the Gulf of Akapar is deep. It's like a grand canyon going along the seabed. But the, un, the unexpected part about this is across that canyon there's a sand bridge from the Egyptian shore, eastern shore, to the, uh, the Saudi Arabian shore. And this sand bridge uh, only goes down a few hundred feet, whereas the, the rest of the seabed, both sides of it, goes down two or 3,000 feet. So you, you've got an underwater sand bridge there, and we've found the remains of this army on that sand bridge. That's just amazing. Right. And not only that, but we've found that uh, we've found two lines of stones uh, which start on on shore and they continue under the sea. Uh, it looks like whoever went across here first of all was moving the stones sideways, so you have two, these two lines of stones coming through the, uh, the, the canyon across the, the Sinai Peninsula and continuing under the water. Uh, this was to allow people to come through. Wow. And, and you don't have any photographs of this, do you, Jonathan? Oh, yes. In fact, oh, you we do? put it on video. Yeah. Oh, my. I, I haven't seen that footage. Uh, yes, we've got we've got on the video footage we've got remains of um, uh, chariot wheels uh, and uh, remains of horses, skeletal remains of horses and men. And uh, not only that, but uh, it can be dated by by the the monuments of Egypt as to when this event happened that was uh, destroyed. You know, Jonathan, every time I, I think about Egypt, I can't help but think. My goodness, I wish I had some sort of time machine to have seen Egypt in its prime. I, I always say this. Oh, yes. Egypt was the superpower at its height. It was the superpower of the day. The rest of the world actually flocked to Egypt when they needed help. Right. It, it must have been interesting to see some of that uh, water erosion that we hear so much of actually in real time. Oh, yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, just... Uh, Three or four feet from where I'm sitting right now as I speak with you, Michael, uh, uh-huh. I've got part of a, of a chariot wheel right here covered in coral but with the iron inside it. Oh, wow. Uh, it wasn't realized that the Egyptians had iron wheels. Yes, but they did. Right. Uh, and, and this iron uh, was eventually coated with coral. The coral grew over the top of it but kept the shape and uh, – my wife comes from the South Pacific, and, and and she's been diving all her life around the coral reefs. And you can tell what's what's natural and what's not natural. And uh, she was diving down here, and she looked down and said, "Hey, that's coral, but it's not coral. That looks like it's growing, but it, it's the wrong shape." 
she dived down actually and she's the one that pulled up this piece and sure enough there was the coral but in order to pull it up because it had got the coral had cemented it to a rock she she pulled and pulled on an axle and the thing broke in half and so she eventually brought up both halves and that was a a real good thing because uh, we wouldn't have known what was inside but there you are inside the coral dead coral is the iron that's really interesting yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So what is it that you found in South America that drove you on your quest? Oh, okay. Well, in these, uh, in the South American jungle, I was, um, staying with these people who, uh, as I just said, were, were out warring among each other. In fact, the three months before I went in, a hundred people were murdered by tribes. That tribe plus the ones around it were, were killing each other. And, uh, yet they had a memory of a civilized past. Now, remember, these people uh, had never seen somebody from the outside world before in this right. particular area. I right. happened to be the first, but um, they showed me. And and uh, how I communicated is is I better tell you that first because otherwise yeah, you say, well, however, how could you talk to them? Um, well, I, I could not speak the the Amazon language. I could not speak uh, Spanish, which of course is the language of Peru and Ecuador and so on. Correct. Uh, but uh, I was flown in from uh, from uh, a place called Shelmera. It's a very it's the end of the road. You go over the bus over the Andes and you eventually end up with this little wild western village, much like the old American Wild West pictures. And uh, that's the end of civilization virtually. But because Peru and Ecuador were disputing this uncharted jungle area to the east, uh, the, the Ecuador government had flown in soldiers and they'd cleared little clearings here and there in the jungle, in the disputed area, and, and settled in it. Because, you know, the expression, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Uh, occupation of a, of a territory right. is, is more or less a, an argument. They say, well, we've got people here, so this is ours. So these army clearings were being supplied once a week by uh, a uh, DC-3 flight. And General Pico, he used to be ambassador to Great Britain. He was now in charge of the army. He was flying in to the army compounds once a week, these supplies that they had all the time. He he got a place for me to sit amongst the cargo, and we we flew over. Saved me weeks of travelling. We got into more remote areas, and uh, then uh, they were lining up in the military uh, post for uh, as a guard of honour as he got out of the plane and I just trotted along beside him. And <laughs> so you <laughs> and just flew him. over on a cargo plane? That's right. Wow. And uh, the, the military people uh, gave me a place to stay with the officers and uh, then they sent uh, scouts out into the villages not too far away uh, trying to bring in a couple of people who could become carriers for my stuff. I'd been up to Los Angeles before I came down to South America and gone into a police disposal store and bought myself a bulletproof vest just just as oh a my <laughs> Right. <laughs> so that was a real concern back then. Oh yes. And uh, the next concern was, I mean, I needed these people to take me in, but would they bring me back? And so uh, things like fish hooks and little bright mirrors and pretty coloured cloth and all sorts of things and little handheld torches and things, these things would make, the, if these people got those as gifts, 
in the eyes of their own fellow natives, they would be like millionaires. Right. So I, I laid all these out on the floor as they were brought in, and I spoke through the well, – what I had was a, a one-cubic-inch English-Spanish uh, dictionary. That's the only Spanish I knew was what was in the dictionary. And that was for common words. And I would look up a word, try to figure out how to speak it, then I would speak to the, the, one of the military men and he would try to understand me. Eventually he'd give me an answer. For each question and answer would take about 30 minutes before we understood each other properly. Wow. But the, the military men, of course, had been related to the natives of, of their country and now they were in the military and so they could speak to a, a large degree the native language and it didn't vary a lot into the unexplored jungle because they were the same race of people. And uh, anyway, we had a lot of fun trying to understand each other and <laughs> yeah. succeeding. But what I did, I laid out all these little trinkets and I, I said to the uh, the na two natives who came to carry my stuff into the jungle with me, I said, when you bring me back, you're going to get these. But until we come back, these are staying right here, but they're yours when you bring me back safely. That's a nice trade-off. Oh, yes, it, it was an important one to do. Yeah, that must have been such an so, incredible experience, by the so, way, Jonathan. Oh, yes, it, it was. Uh, I, I never, I don't think I'd want to do it again, but the fact is right. that uh, I, I had some close shaves, but came through. It was nice. Nice. And uh, anyway, what I found out was this, that they, they brought out a metal plate that looked like it had been engraved very, very deeply into the plate, and what was on it was, you won't believe, Egyptian hieroglyphics. No wow. Kidding. Yeah. Found there. Wow. Right there in the Amazon. And their ancestors, they could count back so many moons and so many generations and, and so on. Uh, their ancestors, about 3,000 years ago, had been trading with the Egyptians. The Egyptians had come all across the sea to yeah. South America and they had uh, brought things, and in exchange, they received gold and silver from yes. the mines of the Andes. Right. They traveled around. Yes. Exploring. Yes. Yeah. So what was on this plate? I mean, you, you say hieroglyphics. Were you able to translate it? No, I was not able to translate it, Amy, but uh, it, it aroused my interest in ancient travel. What are... What is there that could be found if we only knew where to look and what would this tell us about how well the world was known in the past? You're kind of like Indiana Jones, Jonathan. <laughs> or Tomb Raider. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> so, yeah, well, this, this became an obsession with me and I also heard from them that uh, their ancestors lived in great, big, huge stone buildings that towered to the sky, almost, they said, uh, way above the trees, and the lights never went out at night inside these these great buildings. In other words, here were cities, and the cities had uh, some form of illumination that went all night. That was way back in the past before right. the, their descendants became savages, and, and now they had gone home down they, 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 from civilization down to primitive living. And that is the story. And I found I went looking for a pattern on this because we were taught in school that uh, you evolved upwards from savagery to, to become civilized. Well, these natives were saying we have come down from civilization to become what we are. That's what they were saying. Understood. I can see how that would happen. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. And if, 
if a civilization was destroyed, you just think about this. Uh, if a civilization was destroyed, uh, our motor cars and a motor material that would just rust away, hair dryers, uh, computers, uh, everything virtually, in fact, steel, iron and steel rusts away, and everything would disappear except stone. And all you'd have left would be stone and maybe stone axes amongst the trees of the jungle. And later on, archaeologists, a thousand or so years later, would say, oh, these, these were Stone Age people. Nonsense. They weren't Stone Age. That, that's all that's left of, of a civilization that went away. That's very true. And by the way, Jonathan, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, Peru earlier, and I just was reminded about the whole humanoid mummy that was reportedly found in Peru. Did you ever happen to see that, Jonathan? No, no, I I haven't uh, seen it, Michael. I mean, I've heard about it and claims have been okay, made about it. Okay, right. The, the, the claims are not all... The, I, mean, I have documentation which I haven't gone into deeply yet, but it's the, the, the surface uh, um, study of this at the moment is showing that uh, there are... T- Two sorts of claims, and, and and medical experts today are saying that these were human beings, no matter what the the claimed DNA is. Right, and you know, well, for those who aren't familiar, they had found some sort of three-fingered mummified body. And is it the was, Atacama? Yeah, it was found in, in Nazca, Peru, and you could see videos of that on YouTube if you are curious. And, of course, I had on a previous guest by the name of Jay Widener, who does work with Gaia TV, and they are the ones who are putting this out there. And, of course, Jaime Muzan is involved in this, and he's someone who I always have kind of raised an eyebrow towards because of his history. Uh, Well, he has a, a long history in Mexico and on these TV shows, so I always question the source of the material. Yes, it's good to do that. Um, Correct. A lot of people uh, don't discern. No. Uh, I think we, we're too prone often to just to take something exciting and sensational and, and run with it simply because it's new and exciting. And, uh, and further investigation can often prove that it's not exactly what has been claimed for it. Correct. And I don't think Jay liked my whole opinion on that either. He hasn't really responded to me in emails about uh, many, of the, many of the things we've talked about, so... I got him a little upset, I have to imagine. And that's, you know, it happens in life. Not everyone's going to like everything you say. And you can't oh, please, no. and you can't please everyone. And, um, it's the old song and dance, basically, Jonathan. And, and once again, Jonathan, I had seen your name come up in regards to Antarctica. Uh, what's been going on out there? You're, you're, I, I believe you were quoted. Uh, by some article, lots of world leaders were out there, and apparently there's some sort of frozen city, or some city frozen or underneath Antarctica. What was that all about, Jonathan? What's your understanding and take about all that? Yes, well, definitely, first of all, there are legends uh, from the Aborigines of Australia, from the Polynesians of the South Pacific, and from others, that Antarctica was a land that was not covered in ice uh, just a few thousand years ago. It was inhabited by people. And, uh, of course, those legends could not be confirmed until somebody visited. 
and a French-Italian expedition back in the, I think it was the 70s, 1970s, went down there, and as they drilled down into the ice, they came against a man-made tessellated pavement. So there was something there. Well, since then, uh, claims have been made. A television team um, went missing, who and claims were made that they had actually photographed and and uh, they had oh, yeah. uh, found evidence of mm-hmm. a city. And and from what I can see, there is there is definitely remains down there. Uh, and we have stories uh, from history, uh, from other countries, uh, and and from map makers of the past that Antarctica was not only ice-free, but it was inhabited, and that where you have uh, glaciers today, there used to be rivers. And the old maps actually have been used in modern times to correct more recently drawn maps, maps from the late 19, 1900s, uh, and which, you know, it's almost in our lifetime, uh, maps drawn today have had to be corrected by these old maps as they've explored further. Certainly. Yes, but I've, I've found, um, where, and I've been following these studies, uh, these other scientific studies showing that, uh, with the nature of ice and dating the ice, we're, we're finding that we're having to shift our timelines, not by, you know, thousands of years, but by millions of years. And that, you know, we, we are able to date now, uh, this older ice because it is, it is like, uh, it, for some reason it's, this, it's not, uh, subject to the ice melt. It's, it's trapped in the ice. It's, it's trapped in the earth in, in such a way, uh, that it, it preserves it, or is it, it is preserved, uh, by the climate down there. But again, we're not talking about hundreds of years or thousands of years or the time, you know, when, when humanity would have been on earth. We're talking millions of years in, in that time frame. So how does that really coincide with, uh, what's being posited here? Well, um, I can give the testimony of, of a gentleman who was uh, who was ex- going to explore in Greenland, and uh, and that Greenland area is covered in ice where he was going going out, and he he had a, actually a conversation with a a scientific uh, group. I could give you the details if I had the, uh, the if I had the details with me, but I do have them in my files. Um, these people were claiming 135,000 years old for a certain depth of ice. I think something like about 80 feet of ice or something. And uh, he he actually then went to visit somebody who has part of a plane, a World War II plane that was found in the ice 200 feet deep. So he told them, now, how old is this plane? Uh, they said any anything that's so deep has to be several hundred thousand years old. He said, "Well, this is only sixty years old, or something like that." And that is a, that's a fact. And uh, things have been brought up. Planes from the uh, uh, from the Second World War have have been brought up in the, in Greenland, which only are a few a few years old. So the the ice compact. They said yes, but. There has to be one layer of new layer of ice every year. It represents summer, winter, summer, winter, uh, if you can get summer at all in an ice area, but a colder, warmer, colder, warmer. Uh, so he then went to experts who had been uh, working in the area and they said, no, that y- you can have that temperature change with a layer of ice several times a day, depending upon the weather. And so the more compacted ice layers you've got doesn't necessarily represent a longer time. It can represent a short time too. 
Right, but we're talking about um we're talking about Greenland versus Antarctica and I'm um, not quite sure how uh that would be affected in Greenland uh but I, I do know that for sure you know what we're finding is I mean we are finding uh geological evidence in the ice not just dating the ice based on layers like the rings of a tree I mean we're we're actually finding other bits and things that we can date uh, in these ice layers. And I, I just looked it up and, uh, the oldest parts of ice that we've been able to dig into in Antarctica are 1.5 million years old. Because again, you know, we're talking about millions of years, not hundreds or thousands. Well, Ken Ham would disagree with you, Amy. <laughs> That's Ken Ham though. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. However, I, I would have to say that, uh, the dating system today that we have is not reliable. I've written two books on this actually. One right. is the big That's what I've the, heard. The great dating blunder, and the other one is lost civilizations, the big dating shock. Yeah, you're talking about carbon dating, and I've heard the same argument that it's not exactly as accurate as we are led to believe, but of course this opens up a can of worms. Oh, it does, because in Egypt, uh, mummies are being dated hundreds of years older than the coffins they're in. Correct. Uh, you, you can actually date uh, with carbon dating, depending upon how much uh, carbon monoxide is coming from the cars and how close the grass is. I've, I've known of grass to be dated at hundreds of thousands of years old, and the same grass a half a mile away just dated correctly. Certainly. And, and going back to that video, um, for those who were curious, because I'm getting private messages here telling me to go back to Antarctica, and yeah, there was some sort of alleged video that is described to exist, and it says so in this article here that California TV crew had been reported missing, and of course I, I can't really confirm or deny that. I, I really have no idea if that's true. Um, no, but we can't confirm that, but that is what the story is telling us. Right. Yeah. That's the story, and we all know the accounts of one Admiral Byrd who talked about the whole alleged bases out there, and of course we know Hitler was out there back in 1942. I'd have to, I'm guessing, don't, don't, don't take my word for it, but I think it was around 1942 that he was reported out there, and of course we all know Hitler was very into these ancient relics. That is right, yes. He, he he wanted to capture some technology that could help him rule the world. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting that he had that whole mindset. But, of course, he was into the occult and esoteric knowledge as well. The man really wanted to dominate the universe. Oh, yes, yes, that's true. Uh, the, those reports are possibly quite true, that, that, that the Nazis even had a, a base down in Antarctica, uh, the stories, of course, are non-confirmable, and yeah. that's why it's so interesting. Yeah, they're very speculation. They're very mm. sexy stories. Yes. Right. Uh, Amy, did you have something to add here about that? I was going to say that um, the Nazis are still trying to find Atlantis. That's, I believe you're that's right. Still their I mean, shtick. That's a whole yes. other thing. Yeah, I was. You know, I did want to ask you about Atlantis, and some people will refer to. Uh, Lumeria as Atlantis as well. Yes. Well, Atlantis actually, uh, the, the story of Atlantis we, we received, handed down, uh, was third-hand related, uh, and some of the facts, uh, facts that, well, some of the, the claims that are made in that are, 
are fictitious, but others are undoubtedly true. And there was a civilization that was wiped out. And this is where, this is where we have common ground with the Atlantis story, with what we can know for sure today and prove. There was a, a global civilization wiped out in a global disaster and the survivors landed in the mountains of eastern Turkey in the Middle East and from there spread out all over the earth. Uh, so the, the history of mankind from from us back to our ancestors does not start in Africa. It starts in the Middle East. And soon after this disaster, uh, when there were enough survivors uh, had multiplied again, uh, to establish uh, a civilization with the knowledge that was preserved uh, among the uh, survivors. Three civilizations almost arose at the same time. and One was Egypt, one was Sumeria, and the other was the Indus Valley. But all the footsteps lead back to the Middle East. By the way, uh, Amy, you, you've heard of uh, James Churchward, correct? His work with the lost yes. continent of, yes. of Mu and all that? Yes, I've, I've read a whole lot about about Atlantean uh, theories and Mu and Lemuria. Right. And and um, Jonathan, you do you wholeheartedly believe in in, in this? I do believe you that, believe in that, it. that the, mm-hmm. uh, the, there's truth in the fact that there was an advanced civilization. Now that civilization was global. It was worldwide. And the Atlantis story, uh, but, well, because the, the Atlantic Ocean actually was dry land virtually. Uh, it has been considered that maybe that's where Atlantis was. Others have said, it's, no, it's up near Crete. Uh, it, and it, it, the possibility can fit both, actually, either a, not a global civilization in the Mediterranean, but a, a high civilization that was wiped out on a local scale, but not global. Uh, but if it's the Atlantic we're talking about, we're talking about a, a scale that would be global in its effects. And... Uh, uh, Atlantis is often used as a symbol of that civilization that was wiped out, even though the story, as given, is not particularly authentic in every detail. In general principles, there was it was a very high civilization that was wiped out by a water disaster. I've been very interested in the concept for a while now, and I've looked for evidence of you know pretty much anything that I can, uh, any kind of evidence of ancient technology. Uh, but so far, all I've found are ancient counting machines and something like you know, what they call the Baghdad battery, which is right. basically for electroplating. It was for electroplating jewelry. Yes, that's right. And and so it, uh, that that's just one uh, relic of a time that was very technological. Um, I actually, uh, my book Dead Men's Secrets gives a, a thousand. Uh, Evidences. Now, I cull these from tens of thousands over research over 30 years, uh, and uh, the case for the for what's in the book, the the case is there was a global civilization was wiped out, survivors spread out from the Middle East later on, and and aspects of that civilization were preserved and resurrected for about a thousand years, and then we slipped into an age of darkness, and we just the last two or three hundred years just coming back out of it. Uh, but in there I give a thousand uh, evidences of that great civilization. Uh, ever-burning lights, for example, that never go out was global. Found evidence of that. Uh, flight of aircraft, but not using petrol, uh, u- using uh, 
think things like there were several ways they did it. One was mercury, mercury engines. Uh, another was uh, anti-gravity. Uh, and uh, not only are there writings uh, among certain countries of the past concerning this, India, China, Babylonium and so on, but we also have uh, physical objects that have been found which fit nicely into uh, what their writings say and give a certain amount of confirmation. Uh, I wrote a second book called 64 Secrets Ahead of Us in which uh, we've got evidence of 64 ways at least that we know of where we have not yet caught up to the civilization that was wiped out. But the evidence for it, 64 types of things we have good evidence for. See, what I'm familiar with, what I'm familiar with in terms of knowledge that once was but has been lost is, you know, all of the mathematics and all of the science that went on in the Middle East centered around actually, um, what is modern day Iraq. And, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff was just completely wiped out, not by any kind of catastrophic floods, but by the spread of religions. Oh, I love the Sumerian history, by the way. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the, the great disaster came before that, and Iraq was the area where the Sumerian civilization uh, flourished after the great disaster. And uh, yes, there, there was a tremendously high civilization. Uh, Egypt, uh, the Iraq, uh, Sumeria area, and the Indus Valley uh, were the first three, and from those three it branched out. But uh, the earlier civilizations, uh, like the one in Iraq, uh, were wiped out by either man-made or natural disasters. And this was the, the cause, actually, of of this, these localized destructions that took place in the Amazon, uh, in China, in India, uh, in the Middle East, and so on, and also in North America, in the area of the... We have good evidence uh, there was a high civilization in North America, and it was wiped out uh, by uh, weapons from the sky... And this is attested by uh, the oral history of tribes in Canada saying this took place to their south and tribes in Mexico saying it took place to their north. And in the Death Valley area and in a large region around there, there is good evidence that such a disaster did take place and even the remains of streets can still be seen in that particular spot. Yeah, I've been to a lot of areas in the American Southwest, and there's one particular place that just puzzles me. I don't know if you've seen it before. I'm, I'm sure it's a, it's on TV a lot now, but when I discovered it, I'd never seen it in any book, never seen it on television, and that's Sago Canyon. And you see, so you look up, you get there. Uh, first off, the journey there is just really weird because you go through this town. It's almost like a ghost town. Ooh, and you ghost go town. over, uh, I believe it's either a cattle guard or, uh, railroad tracks. You get to this area and you look up. There's this, this mesa and, uh, some cows and a red fence. You look up on top of or on the, the walls of, of these mesas and then you see these, petroglyphs and they they look to be painted in some kind of red paint and of course they've been touched up in recent years but the images on these things are, are they're just captivating and I, i'm trying to just figure out what some of this stuff means because to me and i don't know if it's just pareidolia or not it looks like you see these these beings with you know electricity and things like that and of course you know lightning we we had lightning of course back in the back in these times but you know that it is very curious to me you know what exactly they were trying to capture 
Very interesting, Amy, yes. Uh, I haven't been to that particular spot you speak of, but that kind of thing does raise my interest. Uh, and electricity was used. It was known in the past. Uh, and forms of light that are not electricity in the sense that we need electric wires and things. Uh, may I mention that in Irian Jaya, which is western uh, western uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, in, in which part of Indonesia now, some explorers were in the jungle areas there uh, south of uh, Mount Quilamina and they settled down for the night in the jungle to sleep. But as it got darker, suddenly they, they thought, hey, there's lights around us. And they looked up and, and all along there was a whole row of these 20-foot pillars with huge spheres on top of the pillars and they were glowing like a street light. And they had, it was something that was, uh, the remains of a huge, uh, civilization here because these were uh, flanked by buildings and, and this has helped them, helping them to discover where the streets were. And these men gave a very professional report on this at a town planning conference in Pretoria, South Africa, sometime after that. Just to be a little bit skeptical though, how much do you think that we apply, you know, like our modern technology and ascribe it to uh, the ancients when we see something, kind of like pareidolia. Okay. Uh, we, we don't know what that light source is even today. Um, but it's interesting that the Spaniards, the Spanish conquistadors, when they went to South America, they reported similar remains of cities with lights that were burning all night. That's right. Correct. I remember and reading al- that, yes. And also the tomb of a, of uh Cicero's daughter, Tolo, in Rome, was uh, opened about a thousand years after she was uh, entombed, and at the feet, at her feet, was a ever-burning light. Later on, a lot of people saw it. Thousands of people came to see it, but later it was vandalised, and so the light no longer worked. But some source of ever-burning light is something ahead of us, ahead of our day to day. We don't know how they did it. By the way, you know, that reminds me of a story about Napoleon and the Great Pyramid. Um, he had visited the Great Pyramid and asked to be left alone in the king's chamber. I remember this story uh, vaguely, but I remember when he emerged from the pyramid, he was like discolored in his face. I'm not exactly sure if that's true or not, but that story just kind of came into my mind all of a sudden. Have you, did you ever hear about any, anything like that with Napoleon? No, I haven't, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't dismiss it because there are reports in Egypt of, uh, in the, uh, in the underground labyrinths and so on, lights that were still burning when they were discovered hundreds of years later. Yeah, ancient history is just so fascinating to me, and that also reminds me of one Michael Cremo. Are you familiar with him, Jonathan? Yes, I am familiar with him. I, I really love that guy. He has great work too. Oh, yes, yes. He, he brings out some fascinating discoveries. Certainly. And, and going back to Peru, once again, speaking of Mr. Cremo, that reminds me of the Ica stones that were discovered in Peru. Uh, do you have any opinion on that, sir? Oh, yes. Are, are those um, legit? Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, actually, a, um, a, a farmer nearly went to prison over those. Maybe the story. Oh, my God. Um, actually, uh, they were first found by a farmer, and uh, he started uh, sh- sharing them around. And uh, this was back in the 1960s. Right. He he gave uh, he gave a stone to um, 
a man called Cabrera, a Dr. Cabrera, and uh, on the stone was a carved fish. Uh, and uh, Dr. Cabrera recognised it as a long extinct species of fish, and so that raised his curiosity. And uh, the village farmer explained that he'd collected this and other stones down near the river after a flood. Well, over time, Dr. Cabrera accumulated more and more of these strange carved stones, and it wasn't long before he'd amassed thousands of them. And they, they were carvings that were very sophisticated. And the interesting thing was that some unknown person or persons had carved men fighting with dinosaurs. Right. Men performing surgical operations with surgical equipment and men with telescopes and also maps of the world, uh, which were pretty accurate. Ancient right. maps. Right. And Jonathan, where else did we see things like that in, in Egypt? There's a little pyramid called, I think it's called, um, my goodness, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there, there is a pyramid in Egypt that has these strange, almost like modern, modern craft and, and hieroglyphs. Um, Abydos, that's there we right. go. Yeah, that's right. That's crazy. It's there. Yes. And anyway, this one in Ica, Peru, right. ignited a storm of controversy. And archaeologists, believe it or not, criticized the government of Peru for being lax in enforcing antiquities laws. Right. But that was not their real concern between you and me. So the next step was to apply pressure to government officials to uh, discredit them, these pictures. So the villager who'd been selling the stones to Dr. Kribiru was arrested. And uh, he he refused to disclose exactly where he had found them. But uh, the Peruvian government now threatened to prosecute and imprison the farmer. And they offered him a plea bargain. And the frightened man accepted it. And then he told, retold the story and admitted that he had carved all of the 11,000 stones himself. My goodness, yeah. Uneducated as he was, unskilled as he was, and he'd done the whole lot, uh, intricately carved with animals and scenes that the poor farmer could never had knowledge of. And here was this poor man who needed to earn a daily living to support his large family, and yet despite that, and he would have needed to spend every day for several decades and doing nothing else just to produce that volume of stones. And so the stones were dubbed a hoax and forgotten. Right. And that was because of a pressure to cover up and the government played ball with the scientists. My goodness. Poor man became a victim of something wonderful that he had discovered. Yeah, and they, they did their best to smear his name. It's really horrible. Yes. But this happens mm-hmm. quite a lot around things like this. Right. And by the way, I must ask you, what are your views on Charles Darwin and his theory of human evolution? Uh, I believe that's been very well and truly discredited now. You, you don't you don't buy that at all? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, okay. I, I've also written a book on this because uh, the fact is I, I'm not talking at the top of my head. Right, right, right. Years investigating. I understand. Because yes, sir. Necessary to do so. And and my book is called uh, The Discovery That's Toppling Evolution. Right, and it just seems like human origins here. It's just so um, – it's such a sensitive topic to uh, get into with mostly everyone, really, to be honest with you. it's Well, it, yes, it is. Yeah, we're like it, a it, civilization it, with um, – uh, well, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I'm quite happy to listen to you. Oh, I was just going to say we're a civilization that suffers from amnesia. Yes. And, uh, and you see what, 
what we've got here is two theories. One is chance evolution, Darwin's theory. The other is created design, where everything is so well designed, like your brain is, is far smarter than any computer, no matter what we say about computers doing things. Correct. The human brain, it takes a human brain to make the computer. Right. It couldn't make itself. And who made the human brain? What made the human brain? Impossible. Mindless matter cannot create things that are beautifully designed to fit in. And what about, for example, male and female? A man right, and a woman, right, right. both appear on Earth at the same moment, in the same short period of years, both designed one to merge with the other and produce offspring. That cannot happen. It could not happen in, in a million, million years. It can only be be designed and planned. And are you familiar with the work of Mr. L.A. Marzulli? I am not greatly familiar with it, uh-huh. but I, I know mm-hmm. of it. He also talks about uh, giants with red hair, and I believe one of your books kind of talks about that too. The Lost World of Giants. Yes, Correct. that's right. So we, we did have giants then, in your oh, opinion. Oh, yes. In fact, not only giant men, but the giant animals. For example, kangaroos in Australia were as big as hippopotami then. We, we have dragonflies uh, with a wingspan of six feet. We, ha- we have the sheep as big as horses, used to be. We have trees found in, in coal mines that are a thousand feet tall. Today, the tallest are only 300 and something. Everything is smaller today than it used to be. And and that gave Charles Darwin the shivers. He says, I don't know how I can explain that by evolution, that that's not evolution, that's devolution. And uh, he was honest enough to say that. Now, um, the the world conditions before the great worldwide disaster that destroyed that first civilization, the worldwide conditions can be studied and experiments and museums have been opened in different parts of the world that study this kind of phenomenon uh, and discovered what it would be, what the atmosphere would have to be like to produce larger, bigger everything. And along with bigger everything is longer living everything. In other words, all life forms have deteriorated both in size and in longevity. And that's scientific, scientifically proven as well as the fact you turn on a water tap with water in it and the water comes out. It's as easy to prove as that. Understood. And by the way, Jonathan, I am sort of forgetting if, if I had asked you about this in our previous talks. Um, what exactly is your religious background if you have one, sir? Well, for a good part of my life, I was a skeptic who just lived my own way. So you were an and atheist. I, could, I couldn't be bothered. I didn't. I never go to church. If if I was sitting, if I went to a friend's place for lunch and they suddenly put on uh, religious music, I'd be squirming, wanting to get out of the house as soon as I could. That was how I was. Oh my! Yes, I understand. Sure. Uh, however, my archaeological work took me into the Middle East, and there I began to. I mean, I, I heard of a man who said he discovered certain biblical event evidence of these events right and i was so skeptical i i drew out thirty thousand dollars to disprove him out of my bank account and i was going to shoot him down oh my i took my own teams i've led and accompanied 25 expeditions and to my horror well not to my horror to to my shock to my great surprise i found this man was telling the truth we went up to Turkey. We found the remains of a great survival vessel 12,000 feet up in the mountains. No, I'm sorry, 6,000 feet up in the mountains. 
and that now is recognised uh, by the Turkish government as an international uh, historical park with the remains of the vessel in there. And uh, it, one and a half times as long as a football field. And it, it matches up with the biblical story, not only in, in uh, where it landed, but also in its size and dimensions. Understood. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. So... Um, I then started lecturing and, and the skeptics would come to my lectures and, 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 and hoofing, who knowing, I could he- hear them in the background. But at the end, they would shake my hand and say, Jonathan, we never knew that this was true, but now I'm convinced. Yeah, the uh, skeptics so, definitely do come after you, Jonathan. Oh, they do. The skeptics come after me and I oh, love yes. it because it, it gives me an opportunity to, to bring out more evidence that, uh, and to see the change on their faces. It's, it's wonderful. I love it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Lots of folks That's, out there definitely uh, try their hardest to discredit your work, Mr. Gray. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I don't mind that at all. Um, and uh, also with the Red Sea crossing, we found the remains of, of the, the army of the Pharaoh there, uh, just as, in fact, we took a chariot parts uh, from the Red Sea to the Antiquities Department in Cairo, and the the antiquities director there had no hesitation in dating the remains, not from carbon dating. Carbon dating is unreliable, depending upon the circumstances. Uh, but he dated it from the Egyptian monuments and says there's only one time that this chariot wheel that you're showing me could have actually uh, been in use, and that was the 18th dynasty in the 1400s B.C. That corresponds to the dating given in the book of Exodus relating to the Exodus from Egypt uh, where the the Hebrew race uh, escaped, Pharaoh's army came after them, uh, the sea opened, and they went in after it without thinking what they were doing. They thought we're going to get back our slaves, and the sea came over the t- melt came right back over the top of them, and the chariot parts and chariot cabs and chariot wheels and men and horses were trapped there, and that's what we're finding today. And that, of course, gave me interesting uh, food for thought that. These are not just stories after all. These these are history and archaeology uh, is convincing me that I've got to take notice here and start looking at, at, at real history. Right. And it, it seems like these stories that we read about in ancient times seem to carry some truth to some of the legends. And by the way, that reminds me, um, where do you stand on the work of one Zachariah Sitchin? Uh, I contacted, I used to quote Zechariah Sitchin. In fact, I've still got his, his quotations from him in the book. He, he had some what? things right, and that was yeah. there was a worldwide, there was a great civilization in the past. Uh, there was a great disaster. He had that part right. But then he went off into, um, claims, which I accepted. Uh, and, uh, then I started, I, I think I've got to investigate this too. And I began to find out that when he said that certain things were in the Sumerian records, he actually made that publicity and wrote his books and made a lot of money before anyone had evidence against or for. But then researchers came in and started translating all of the texts. He said that he had translated them, and this was the story that they told. Uh, they started translating them, and there was no such story told at all. In Correct. fact, the names he used and the words he used had no, no such meaning. So if I'm going to be honest with the dear man, I will give him the credit. I will write to him personally and contact him. So I started communicating with him, and he was unable to prove his claims. In fact, they were disproved. Oh, my, yes. There was one uh, one independent researcher by the name of Michael Heiser 
who has been very vocal over the years that Mr. Zechariah Sitchin had been sort of embellishing some of the work that he has done in the past. Yes, uh, Michael Heiser actually has done very good scholarship work. Uh, Correct. And he can I respect him. Yeah, I respect him greatly, just like I respect you, Mr. Jonathan Gray. Thank you. Yes, sir. And that also reminds me of um, Ancient Aliens, by the way, the the TV show. How does how does one feel about the TV series? It it has its critics as well, Mr. Jonathan Gray. Well, I can speak from from family involvement in the UFO uh, theory. My paternal grandfather lived in Australia. He was English, but he lived in Australia, and he became one of Australia's leading proponents of the UFO uh, alien theory. And he used to run seances in the Sydney Town Hall, attended by up to 3,000 people at a time. And he had claim, he was making claims that aliens were coming from other worlds. Well, I had experiences, and it's a long story. I could write a book on this one. I have, actually. <laughs> nice. UFO aliens, the deadly secret. Correct. Um, and uh, investigations showed that uh, aliens are not from, the so-called aliens are not from other worlds. They are from another dimension. And they, yes. they can slip in and out of the right. dimension and nothing to do with other worlds at all. Yeah, it's really interesting. And by the way, Jonathan, you've never experienced any kind of strange lights in the sky or anything uh, that would be considered, quote unquote, paranormal. Not personally, but I have good friends who have. Oh, OK, so you're not exactly close minded to these sort of experiences that many folks out there experience on a daily basis. Oh, no, people do experience them. The experiences are real, but the, the claims made made by the proponents uh, to explain them and the claims made by the so-called aliens, uh, are also false. Uh, they, they've got an agenda and, uh, uh, we, we're talking about fallen beings actually who, who are confined to this earth and, but have something greater than all of our technology and they can produce signs and lying wonders and a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, when they say, uh, that they, are from other worlds have fallen for the trick and believe them. Understood. And and what's with the whole archaeological cover-ups, Jonathan? What's been going on with the Smithsonian? Why do they keep doing what they do? Well, uh, that is another interesting story. And um, maybe I could could uh, I could relate something that's been going on. Sure. Uh, I did. Right. I, I I did report that the Smithsonian was dumping things at sea, and. Uh, the uh, I, we have a record of this going on since the early days in America, and not not dumping in the sea, but losing stuff conveniently that uh, is against the Darwinian theory. And uh, anyway, I was on radio. I was on a uh, on the uh, coast to coast AM show on one occasion, and I mentioned that the uh, Smithsonian loaded embarrassing archaeological items onto a boat and had them dumped into the Caribbean Sea. Well, now. I raised the issue. Soon after that, I received an email from one of the listeners, and and he he wrote, I listened for the first time with your interview, and I am, in a word, fascinated. Now, actually, by coincidence, I I was looking at that this afternoon, and I've got it right here on my desk, so I'll give you his his, uh, word for word. Go ahead. He said, I can corroborate your statement regarding the dumping of artifacts into the ocean because of a conversation with a Gulf War vet that said he personally dumped dozens of artifacts into the ocean during that same Pacific time. Some were clay tablets. 
Interestingly, this conversation happened maybe only 25 days ago and was completely unprompted. I knew nothing of this before, and now this, Jim West. And then I received an email from another listener, and this is what he said. He said, you mentioned on radio that the Smithsonian Institute dumped a boatload of artifacts that did not fit the evolution theory in the Caribbean Sea. I am a tugboat captain. You can Google my name and learn that I'm legit. I've literally written the book on tugboating, and I can confirm that your mention of the artifact dumping is 100% correct. For just under three years ago, I worked out of the Philly Naval Yard as a subcontractor with a low-level security clearance on two projects, and I gained first-hand knowledge of this practice. We sunk a tremendous amount of materials, firstly for the U.S. government, but you inspired me to hold, not hold back any more. Email me if you're interested in specific details, and I'll dig up my old logs in storage and see what I wrote down. I keep detailed work logs to make sure details are remembered correctly. I know I put what I learnt in those logs. They're here at home, but just down in storage. Not hard to dig out. And he gave me his name and the name of the tugboat company and its address. Very interesting, yeah. I've never heard that. Independent witnesses to the Smithsonian dumping. Wow. Interesting stuff here. And also another thing I did want to cover here before we get going here is your book, The Forbidden Secret. Oh, yes. I... Definitely like that book. I read some of it, and I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. What actually um, influenced you to write that book, sir? Well, uh, what influenced me to write it was a couple of things. Uh, in the early chapters, I do mention uh, a, a, a university professor in Perth, Western Australia, Peter Golden, who uh, discovered that uh, there was going to be a... Uh, a massacre in Indonesia of Australian football players uh, with the intention of arousing and blaming the Muslims for it with the intention of uh, provoking a war in the Middle East. Uh, then also, 11 months before it happened, he discovered the plot for a... Uh, I'll tell you how he discovered it. He actually yeah, was, in addition to being a professor, he was... Uh, he had a, a business on the side, an international business of importing and exporting computer software. And he happened hmm. to deal with a computer company based in uh, Toronto, Canada, that was brought there after the Hitler War, and with the intention of listening into the White House, to Canberra, Australia, to Wellington, New Zealand, to London, Britain, of secret plans that any of the Western governments would have, so that they can, uh, if they if necessary, change those plans and and take over eventually. There's a power behind that behind it all. So he discovered the plans for 9/11. 11 months before it took place. That's interesting. Yes. So he went to friends uh, in Canberra that he grew up with because that's where he went to to college as well. And he he told what he had discovered. And his friends said, write me a report. He said, I have people I can trust in the government who would like to know this. So he he wrote a 5,000-page report. Within one week, now, by the way, this man, uh, Peter, uh, he had a good relationship with the West Australian police because he actually had a hostel, in addition to the university teaching, he had a hostel for overseas students, uh, which he operated, and this involved uh, sometimes a need for the police to intervene with with foreigners who were being subjected to one thing or another. Understood. And the police and he had a very good relationship, and they, they trusted him, and, and they supported him. So 
A week after he gave his 5,000-page report into the Australian government, the police came on his door and said, Mr Golden, you have to get out of Australia quickly because there's a contract out on your life and that of your six-year-old daughter. Wow. So he fled to New Zealand here. He came to the same place that I was later on going to and come to, and we got to know each other. Uh, that's a long story. My you could goodness. write a book on that alone. I know, my goodness. And, yes, we don't really get too many outside perspectives of those who are outside of this country, Jonathan. And I, I did want to get your your take and your opinions on um, our, our president here in America, Mr. John, uh, Donald J. Trump. Uh, how do you feel about him, and what are the citizens saying in your country, sir? Well, he is a man with a lot of business experience and a man who has some some things he wants to do, which will be for the good of America. But his wife and his vice president and uh, 23 advisors in the White House belong to an organization which plans to take over America. Oh, not no. Not for the good of America. Oh, no. I, I like his wife, to be honest. I'm, I kind of have a little crush on her, to be honest with you, Mr. Gray. Oh, yeah, she's a nice lady. She's a very good-looking uh, older lady there. My God. And, and these some of these people who belong to the organization do not know its plans because they're decent people. It's like the lower echelons in lots of organizations. They don't know what the hierarchy are up to. Yes, this is all very interesting stuff. And, of course, we um, just passed by the whole anniversary of 9-11. Um, what are the citizens saying out there, Jonathan? Uh, they're saying that America is uh, – they're actually saying that uh, there's going to be a, a big crash coming oh. within the next uh, two or three years. Oh, no. Yes. Uh, f- first of all, look look for, for it to happen in Japan, followed by the, the by Europe, the European Union. Uh, while that's happening, uh, resources are going to pour into a safe haven, which is still the United States. But once that stops, the United States is in in trouble. By the way, they were supposed and, and to oh, followed by oh, the world. Ahead. But by the that's way, that's what they're saying. Yeah. By the way, Jonathan, an- another thing. Today was supposed to be the end of the world, according to one individual out there. Oh yes, I've, I've been hearing that for weeks, and uh, and that was based upon a misunderstanding of an old prophecy. And and, and my answer has been to anybody asking me, uh, get to know that prophecy the way it's really saying, and it's not saying anything like that. Right, and see that brings back the whole 2012 type apocalyptic situation and the whole Anunnaki and all of that, all of that uh, romantic idea. Will there will there be anything like that? Will Nubiru actually cause any of these? Um, I guess you could say a pole shift. Will that actually happen, Jonathan? No, it won't. I figured. I, I, I'm, I'm I'm certain it won't. There there have been uh, such predictions going back. I can remember about thirty years. Different dates were set for a so-called planet Nibiru coming right. and doing something like that. Each right. time it failed. Yeah, lots of people really bought into that. Uh, Jonathan, and of course, lots of people profit off off of uh, those folks out there too, and it's really discouraging. Oh yes, they do. They do. Yeah. It's now so you're sad. asking me why I why I wrote the Forbidden Secret. Yes, there was sir. another reason too. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, the, the 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 Forbidden Secret actually uh, zeroes in on an event that happened two thousand years ago, and a cover up has been made too. Now, when I told you that I went to shoot down another archaeologist who said he had discovered something, uh, 
I was, I was not fooling. I, I, his, his biggest claim was something that uh, would could cause a war between the Israelis and the Muslims in Jerusalem. And uh, he's been uh, very much uh, involved in uh, in attempted assassinations toward him, as well as covering up of what he has been claiming to be found. And and this is a secret. If they're trying to keep it a secret. They forbid the news coming out, and this is part of what I call the forbidden secret. Right. Fact is that there's information that should come out, but it's they're trying to keep it secret. Yeah, the cosmic suppression is real, Jonathan. My God. Oh yes, yes it is. Now there was an artifact found in January, January the sixth, nineteen eighty-two, after a three-year dig. Uh, American archaeologist Ron Wyatt claimed to have found the most Priceless artifact in, in, in the world, the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, I mean, the no. movies have been made about this. Oh, my. Yes. And he presented one object from the same cave to the Israeli authorities. And this convinced them that he had indeed found some items from Solomon's temple. Now, what he had found and brought out to the Israeli authorities was an ivory pomegranate head of the priestly scepter from Solomon's temple. And this was positive confirmation that something from Solomon's temple had indeed be found. And he said, well, there's not only that, there's the Ark of the Covenant, there's the, the seven-branch lampstand, there's the table of showbread, there's, there's a huge sword and a few other things. And he was promptly ordered by the government not to reveal certain things. Well, I personally set out with a briefcase full of objections uh, against Wyatt's claims, uh, Michael. Right. But after intense investigation and repeated visits to the dig sites, and privileged viewing of evidence and artefacts, I was totally convinced. But one problem was to arise, and it concerned the ivory pomegranate that he had presented to them. It disappeared, and then it reappeared. Oh. And then the Israeli government bought it for from an anonymous collector, who had no doubt stolen it. They bought it from, uh, from him for $550,000, and they put their money in a secret Swiss bank account at the time. And then the pomegranate was placed on display at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and and when we saw it and photographed it, it, right there in the museum, and they placed a sign next to it stating, "This is a sensational discovery of great significance to the history of archaeology of ancient Israel. This is the only known object from the first temple built by Solomon in Jerusalem." And they showed this off to the world, and uh, then soon after that. Associated Press reported that it had been declared a fake and uh, that the uh, antique dealers had been arrested for a forgery. And this was just a forgery. And uh, according to the indictment, they took genuine artifacts and added inscriptions to them and falsely increased their importance so that their value would be inflated. Now, when this claim was made that this was a forgery, a fake, I made a public announcement at the time and said, this does not cancel out the genuineness of what is still in the cave. But the only crime would be, if there was any, the forging of the inscription. I do, I, I do have evidence that this artifact is genuine, but the inscription may, if they're claiming, right. be a fake. However, soon after this, a man, he was a paleographer, Robert Douche, he announced from Tel Aviv, are there no limits to hypocrisy? Why weren't leading Israeli paleographers allowed to participate in the conference to discuss whether this was authentic or a faith, leading on their expertise? And he said, right. 
why is the evidence that this is a genuine artifact ignored? As a paleographer, I have handled and published more than 1,000 West Semitic inscriptions. The first rule for me was to authenticate the items by investigating it under microscopic conditions and only then publish them. And some fakes observed in private collections have been omitted or published according to titles. But in my capacity as a paleographer, I can't contact the Israeli Museum for permission to check this pomegranate and they wouldn't let me. They never gave it to anyone who was an expert. It was only after my lawyer appealed to the museum director was I allowed to visit the museum and examine the pomegranate. And the museum told me I would not be allowed to use their microscope. So anyway, I expected that, so I bought my own anyway. Yeah. And then they wouldn't even give me a table that I could place my microscope on. And only after 10 minutes of dispute, they gave me a table, but no chair. Well, finally, they brought the pomegranate into the room, and I was immediately told I'd not be allowed to touch it. And then somebody had to be with me all the time. In any event, I spent more than an hour and a half checking the inscription on the pomegranate and took several photographs. My conclusion is the letters engraved were engraved in antiquity and they match the time of King Solomon. There cannot be any doubt whatever that the letters have been damaged, but they were engraved before the ivory was broken. And he kept on giving evidence. So what we have here is a question then, why was a genuine artifact declared to be a fake and the, and the most uh, qualified man forbidden to see it? True. And their attempt to discover the truth, he said, is an exercise in futility. They do not want people to know what that archaeologist has found. It certainly seems that way. Yes. can't really argue so, that. Yeah. So what we've got here is a problem that relates to the government uh, who are looking at Israel's history and, and are willing to, to cover up, uh, and also it's an anti-religious bias. Right. Because if this is true that the pomegranate is authentic, then it means that the Ark of the Covenant is authentic likewise. And a committee led by the Tel Aviv University's uh, Google Yoren concluded it was a forgery, but the forger uh, was a man who was only an antiquities dealer, and it was no forgery at all. Right. So so there, there was an attempt to, to make a forgery out of something that was genuine. Uh, this is the kind of cover-up that goes on all the time. Certainly, and another thing I did want to get into with you since we are coming to a close here on the interview was, of course, the afterlife. I don't think I've ever talked to you very much about that, sir, and what is your opinion on the afterlife? Is there an afterlife, sir, in your opinion? Well, that's a good question. It certainly is, Michael. Well, let me say this. Uh, I was about almost to, to mention that casually without making it an issue. Um, yes, there is an afterlife, but the afterlife actually is is a conditional thing. It's not something that automatically comes like a reincarnation. Now, uh, what we have here on the Ark of the Covenant is a claim made in the, the biblical writings that uh, the blood of the Messiah would go onto the Ark of the Covenant. There was a prophecy in the Old Testament that that would happen. Now, the blood of the Messiah, the Messiah uh, was to be born of a virgin, which means that he would have no earthly father. That was in the prophecies. Now, the New Testament states that he did have an, uh, no earthly father and that his blood was spilt and the crack was opened under the cross hole and it went down. 
Now, this is what the archaeologists have now found. There are four cross holes. There were to be three people executed that day, and that's in the Gospels. But uh, because they found Yeshua, Jesus, uh, and they've been looking for him and trying to kill him for years, they wanted to make him a public spectacle, so they put a fourth cross hole above the other others, and he went right there with two thieves, uh, not three, and uh, they made a spectacle of him. But the rocks were opened, according to the record, and his blood went down. Now, Ron Wyatt claimed to have found human blood that was totally human, but unlike other human blood. Blood, blood, normally we have 23 chromosomes from our fathers, 23 from our mothers. Ron said the blood of this man was tested in a laboratory in Israel, close to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and found to be the blood of a man that had no earthly father. 23 chromosomes from his mother, and then a Y chromosome, which had to have been provided by God himself, because no man could have done it. But that made him male. Now, Ron said he had found that. Skeptics came out and says, oh, come on, there's not such a thing as, as blood like that. Uh, so it was tested in Germany and again in the United States, several laboratories, and I have witnesses who have given me sworn testimony, which can, includes testimony from one of America's most eminent and, uh, and uh, well-respected and brilliant uh, certifiers. Ron Wyatt was going to give a... Uh, a, uh, a lecture over in, uh, what was it, in Arizona, and uh, he was asked to bring his certificates from Jerusalem, from Germany, and from other laboratories in America that tested the blood. And he didn't know, however, that this expert, this, this uh, examination expert was going to be present. And there was a lawyer present as well. There were five people sitting around the table and, and Ron White was, was asked, hand over your certificates and let this man, he's an expert, test them. Now this man had gone to the trouble of going to the laboratory in, in uh, Israel, going to the laboratory in uh, Germany and to America, and uh, he had all the certificates and signatures and letterheads and everything relating to those periods in his book. And uh, when Ron handed over, this man went through it all and then he was asked to give his opinion. Well, are those certificates genuine or not? Is that the blood of a man who died, who uh, had no earthly father, only an earthly mother? And he said, I could go into any law court of America and testify that these certificates are genuine. So there we have testimony. Now, the, the Gospels did say that Jesus gave his blood. He took our place. Uh, we've all done wrong. We've all broken the laws of the universe. And if we want to live forever, we have to come into harmony with those laws and we need forgiveness by someone having taken the penalty on our behalf. And that blood testing convinced me that we have actually a, a true word there. And no longer a skeptic, I do believe right. the, 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 the Gospels as being true and this means that eternal life is there for those who will accept this Messiah in what he did. Understood. And Jonathan, I do want to thank you so much for being a part of the program. And I could talk to you all night, really. I haven't really scratched much of the surface in terms of the questions I had. However, uh, it's been a great conversation with you, and I've enjoyed my time with you greatly. And I hope uh, those listening around the world enjoyed the program as well. And now, Jonathan, I, I would love for you to plug anything uh, you'd like any perhaps new work on the horizon. What's, what's going on with you, Jonathan? 
Well, actually, I've just produced uh, a, a set of DVDs on modern miracles. And uh, this shows that uh, things are happening today that have never uh, been thought possible. Biblical-style miracles that are going on all over the world, in America, Australia, India, Middle East, Europe, everywhere, that you would consider to be impossible to happen, but they're happening. And, and I've documented 31 stories on five DVDs, and the special offer only... I only, only actually sent out my first newsletter about this today, so it's available for the world to come and have a look. Uh, and maybe I could just give the website. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, www.beforeus.com, but for this special offer, it's forward slash uh, Miracle DVDs, M-I-R-A-C-L-E-DVDs.html, MiracleDVDs.html. No hyphens. And uh, that's at the website beforeus.com. Beforeus.com forward slash miracledvds.html. Beautiful. Yes. And Jonathan, I once again would love to thank you so much for being a part of the program. We really appreciate your time here. And uh, definitely we'll touch base with you again in the near future, sir. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure. And Amy, likewise, it's uh, been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All right, Jonathan. Take care, sir. Thank you. All right, Bye. Good night. And that was Jonathan Gray and Amy. What's going on? How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm I'm just doing a little bit of research. You know, I, I've not heard that claim before. That was some uh, new stuff. Jesus DNA stuff. Yeah. But I'm I'm looking it up online, and I'm you know uh, finding a lot of disturbing stuff, uh, especially about Ron Wyatt here. Oh God! Uh, <laughs> a lot of creationists look like they even uh, won't own. <laughs> <laughs> they they oh won't my. even take credit for this, some right. of the things that he's saying. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, I guess he, he took a sample from some dried blood and the tests, nobody seems to have a copy of these tests. So, uh, would definitely want to see that. Right. Uh, apparently he was a nurse anesthetist and he's, of course, now deceased. So you can't really argue very right, well right, with a right. dead guy, but, Can do that. uh, you know, no, no disrespect, but, sure. you know, there's, a, there are a lot of questions that there I have really, about that, you no know, doubt. and uh, maybe our, our guest could have better answered these, of course, but he's it not really, named Ron Wyatt either. Right. It really opened the can of worms, to be honest. So much to yeah, say. I mean, in a way, I mean, it's, I, I don't know if it's so much a can of worms as it is just, uh, you know, referencing something which, you know, it's, it's like if somebody makes the claim to me, if they make a bold claim, they say, well, I have this DNA from this person. It looks like it was an immaculate conception. You know, there's only the DNA of the mother. You know, I'm, I'm going to say, well, maybe we need to rerun that test. Because yeah, that's it, the thing. You know, I'm an agnostic atheist, so I kind of question all those sort of things as well. But, yeah, you know, yeah. that's just me. But of course, Certainly. of course, I am open minded to all of this. And of course, I respect Jonathan Gray uh, tremendously. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I respect people out there researching. Um, you know, I but I, I do understand that, especially in, you know, the, the fields of anthropology and archaeology, there's there's a lot of people that are in it. Um, you know, for their own reasons, for their own life's work. Confirmation biasness does, does, uh, manifest, certainly. Yeah. And so 
you know, the, when they're in it from themselves, you know, there arises a lot of confirmation bias and things. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that's what's happening right now, right, uh, right. you know, with our, our prior guests, but I, I do know that like, these are real problems that certainly, science certainly. is having to like face in these fields and also in fields like psychology, because there's a lot of new science going on in psychology too, the more that we learn about the brain. But, you know, just kind of going back to the archaeological perspective and, and sociology and anthropology, you know, yeah, there are a lot of people out there who are in those fields because they seek to fulfill and to, uh, you know, just reconcile their own beliefs. And so when you do that, you know, what you're doing is you are seeking things to confirm your own beliefs. So you are painting that whatever you look for, whatever you find, you know, with this bias. So you're only seeking out things that support that belief. You're not looking at the whole picture. Unfortunately, that is the reality that we are facing with not just Jonathan Gray, but with both uh, guests that we spoke to tonight. And it's good that we have these kind of conversations at the end of the show. Um, it's good to discern. And, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And hopefully and, they and do the no same. No disrespect to either of the guests, you know, either sets of guests, you know, no. I, I really enjoy listening to them. And I, and anytime anybody has, uh, you it's know, fair, something that it, has. It's fair criticism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and again, I don't seek to like just criticize people. You know, I just, it's, it's like when, when we have a bunch of listeners out there. No, this is good uh, stuff though. We, stuff. we have to have these conversations. It's good yeah, for you, the mind. You have to have that, you know, that, that element, that, that counterbalance, you know, going on here because, you know, when you have like bold claims being made, it's, it's the difference between, you know, there's somebody out there doing research and then there's somebody out there that claims that they have actually experienced something by themselves. Correct. And if, if somebody is experienced something, I don't want to sit there and say, I don't think you experienced that, or I really doubt you experienced that, because not only is that really insulting, but in <laughs> right. some ways it's unethical. Yeah. Because it, you're taking somebody's personal belief and you're you're trying to, you know, chip away at it. But there's a difference between that and then being an authoritative or, or, or in, in, in a, like an authority figure. Uh, there's, there's a difference between, you know, saying I had an experience and then being an authority on these types of experiences or coming at something, you know, as, as the voice of, you know, I've, I've written a book or I, I have this education, I have this degree behind me. I have all this wonderful life experience and this is what I am positing. There's, there's a little bit of a difference there between somebody who claims to be a personal experiencer and somebody who claims to be a researcher. And I feel more inclined to <laughs> right. enter into skeptical debate with somebody who claims to be a, a researcher rather than somebody who claims to have experienced something personally. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. And this was good, though. We need to have these conversations like I alluded to a second ago. It's great that we did this and we're having this conversation now because most people out there, they, well, when they listen to other shows, they don't really get that, that side. Yeah. And, yeah. and see, the one thing I guess that bothers me too is because, you know, I can't really have like these really critical discussions with a lot of people that believe things. I've, I've tried stuff like this. Well, they're the very sensitive. Like, That's the family. thing. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's like you, you can't really do that. Uh, but when I'm listening to this and I hear that, you know, somebody has gone through something like regression therapy, you know, imagine being told on a radio show that regression hypnosis uh, isn't real necessarily, that it's that actually being able to regress and, you know, obtain these these memories from deep inside your subconscious, that that is not real. 
and I'm, I don't want to be that person to <laughs> sit there and tell somebody that, that right. you know, this, this, is, because I'm, I'm not seeking to, uh, you know, I'm not seeking to tell them that what they experienced wasn't real. Uh, but like when I do my own shows and things, I invite guests on with all sorts of different perspectives. And it's, it's like I've, I've even had Stan Friedman on in the past and I've said, you know, well, you know, there's this problem that I have with regression hypnosis. And, you know, it's, it's to the point that, you know, uh, you, you have all these major psychological associations and psychiatric associations, both, uh, APAs, as it were, denying that it's even possible to regress and, and, you know, and do this and, and, and obtain these, these deep seated memories into the back of the mind, you know, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you've got a lot of stuff going on too. Um, it's, it's not just in like the UFO community or with alien abductions. There are a lot of people out there who are not qualified doing these things. People I, who are, you know, I, I also believe there's something else as well that, that they're not telling us. There's some sort of traumatic experience that they had, and they're definitely not sharing that with us. And I think a lot of that is the root. Uh, well, not not with everybody, but I think definitely there's a root issue with most individuals out there who make up these sort of claims, these extraordinary claims that require uh, extraordinary evidence, as you know, Amy. Yeah, and, and, and see, it's mm-hmm. it's not my place to judge whether or Neither, not they I, believe. I know, I know. That's that's the thing. Most people here on this program. Sometimes they want me to question things more or sometimes they don't. And you, you have to, you, you have to keep in mind that, you know, you don't want to completely bury the guest with your skepticism. Right. And, and that's not what I do. I, I seek more to be right. the, like the friendly skeptic, the, yeah, the skeptic that will listen to everything that you have to say, because I am genuinely interested in uh, just the nature of belief and how people believe things and how people come to experience things. And, you know, I'll be the first to tell you, I've not been absent of weird things happening in my life. You know, and I and also I've had my dad on uh, to discuss his weird experiences, too. You know, he, he claims to have seen other extraordinary things that I have not seen in my life. But, you know, I, I like to listen to those stories. I think it's really important uh, to hear people out and Myself to listen to them and yeah. not be completely dismissive. Right. But at the same time, you know, realize these things, you know, maybe they, they did have some sort of an experience. But the part that I do have the problem with are all of these unethical people that are just seeking them out like vultures right. or like emotional vampires going after them and saying, well, I can offer you this service and I can regress you and you can learn, you know, all these things that happen <laughs> yeah. because it's not possible. That's not how the brain works. Yeah, you got to be careful with those individuals and my, myself included. I, I've had these weird experiences, yet I still question those experiences entirely till this day. Yeah, I mean, and that's good. You should always question stuff like that. And, you know, it's it's like whenever I see something that's odd or I experience anything that's odd, you know, I, I have to kind of put on my glasses and, and, you know, see it through a somewhat skeptical filter. Certainly. But I can't be too critical about these things. I have to right. also look at it, you know, what is what is the experience I had and, you know, just kind of keep a log of it, keep a journal of it and never claim to know exactly what you saw. Because I've just seen a lot of interesting stuff, but I don't know what it is. Right. And and now, Amy, I, I must give uh, some shout outs now to the countries that are leading the way in the top 10 
ranking here. And of course, America, the United States, always number one in terms of listener minutes. However, uh, number two, Germany, they have really been putting in the work there. And Guten Morgen to those out there. And of course, the UK, number three. And number four, Canada, followed by France. And number six is Afghanistan. And seven, unknown. Eight is Norway. Nine is the Netherlands. And of course, number 10 is Japan. And this is rather interesting, Amy. I've, I've never, oh, cool. yeah, I never thought I'd see these countries, um, listening in like that. It's really, it's really strange, really. Yeah. You got people from all sorts of different time zones. Yeah. I got to love the internet makes us all one. And uh, speaking of all of this, um, the internet and this and that, going back to uh, cell phones, Amy, are, are you interested in the whole iPhone, the new one? No. <laughs> Neither am I. I. I think we covered this on the last show. I got to ask I'm you again. with my iPhone 6S Plus. You're going to stick with it? I, I think I might have to go with Android. Yeah, you know... <sighs> I would, but I have here's to. the thing: I just invested in a MacBook Pro. Oh no, you you kind of shot yeah, yourself in so the foot. Like, now I've got like all my files and my notes and everything in sync, and it's like, man, that's kind of nice to have everything in sync, and it's not, you know, I've, I don't I don't have this one device that's kind of an island unto itself, and you know, and these other things. I've had so much bad bad luck with with the whole iPhone. I think I'm just done with it. I'm so sad. You know, I, and, and at some point I'm probably going to have to say that I'm done with it. Uh, but now I don't know if I'm in too deep or not. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I, I've got this, of course, I do radio as well. And the problem that I have with newer iPhones is that it doesn't have that aux port that I need, that I, that I really, really need because I, I use my phone for Skype and things. And when you do radio, you like to have uh you, you like to have pro audio going on and uh right. from what I've been told from other people that there's some latency there uh through the lightning port and it doesn't sound exactly the same and uh you know that's again that's just one more thing that I'd have to I'd have to do. I mean it's it, I guess it's not an impossibility, but it's definitely not something I would prefer. Certainly. And another thing I have to say, I, I do want to thank you very much for being a part of this uh, episode here. It's very it, it's been a very triumphant year for myself, which is oh, why. Sweet. Yeah, which is why I chose to drink yet again here on the program uh, celebrating this whole triumphant victory I've had. It's been an amazing run for myself. And also it's been extremely fun. And I will also take the opportunity to say that. Uh, designs for mer- merchandise are now being focused on and t-shirts will essentially be made first. And of course I want coffee mugs and, uh, cell phone covers. W- would you ever buy a cell phone cover, Amy? Do you think that's a good idea to put out there? Hmm. Or, I, I don't know. It or is that too cheesy? If it, if it has that. <laughs> If it has that little, um, I don't know if it's latex on the inside or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. I've, I've, I've just got a special one for my phone so that, you know, I, I, I just don't want it to break. Right. Got to. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it depends if it's a hard shell or if it's like a, a combination of both or not. What about a coffee mug? Oh, definitely. Coffee mug. You're t-shirt. in. T-shirt, coffee mug. That's you're in for that. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I actually had showed you some of the t-shirt designs. Yeah, I was digging those. Should I put out a pink one? 
or nah? I don't know. See, I'm not the kind of person that wears a whole lot of pink. There, there's some uh, girls I, that do listen, like, you know. Like into the black so. and gray right, and stuff. Right. You know, but we do have our female listeners out there who do love the whole girly color, so I'm thinking about them. I don't know. Maybe a black shirt with the uh maybe a pink logo. Oh, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll put that out there. So, um, Amy, I, I do want to thank you once again for being a part of the program. It seems like lots of people out there I really do like this dynamic of me and you both on the radio. And, of course, I, I do love you greatly. It, it's always fun. Oh, thank you. It's always fun to have you here on the program. It's, yeah, it's fun to do. Yeah, it's a good time, and, and lots of folks out there uh, seem to really enjoy this sort of dynamic between us. Hey, yeah, I'm I'm up for this any time in the future. Perfect. So, once again, we'll, we'll have to do this uh, yet again. So, Amy, definitely plug anything you want. And I do thank you once again for being a special co-host tonight. It's always oh, an honor thanks. and yeah. privilege to have you here. Okay, yes. So, sure, uh, I'd like to first plug Deep Talk Radio Network. That's my home network. And uh, I want to say hi to TJ and also my executive producer out there, James, and James, listening right. tonight. So, definitely want to plug them. Yeah. And also my website, amyontheradio.com, and I'm on the air Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time. So from 8 to 10 p.m., you can hear me live each week. Wonderful. Good time. So, Amy, again, love having you here, and we'll do this again in the near future. All right. Well, uh, you take it easy, okay? No problem. Take care. All right. All right. Bye-bye. And, of course, that was Amy Martin. Ladies and gentlemen, give her a round of applause for being here. You done? Good. I'm glad you're done clapping there. If you are listening to this on a replay, keep in mind, you can listen every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's 11 p.m. Eastern Time, live on the TuneIn Radio app. And, and of course, if you enjoyed this program and want to help fund the program, go to michaeldeacon.com. And donate a few dollars, and of course, this program depends on its listeners. That means you, sitting there right now. Be a friend and share the program, or drop a few dollars my way. I would greatly appreciate that, certainly. Of course, I'm Michael Deacon. Thank you for listening. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. Jerry. I'm not that way. I'm a Christian. Yeah. Not out of that. Not out of that. The Illuminati, yes. We've got going to be behind them, but the Illuminati certainly is part of the whole thing. But the top members of the Illuminati are open I can tell that all the mainstream media outlets were giving me, like, bullshit. Like, if I just see it, it's clear. <laughs> How appropriate. I wish I could be in that ring with Hogan right now. It's crazy. I had no idea they should exist before 726. Oh, Granny. I'm not a Granny. I'm a deep real. A lot of good content. A lot of, a lot of cool topics. You know, I, yeah, I feel, you know, fortunate to have an opportunity. Speaking of the lady earlier, you know, keeping Yeah, Mr. Rusev. That's shit. I like that, man. It's the simplest shit. You go in there, you see the buzz and then you say, you're like, I'm going to come. You're 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 going
just for what it's worth, I want to put in my two cents to tell you that the have to have those incredibly well-rounded Introducing the greatest tag team on the radio. Guess what, You were you were a headline guy, I'm and still then a headline guy. You know what I mean? You, for a while you popped out. Now you're coming back. For I a while, back, for a while you were actually do, you, you, know were running, I mean? you were running a gym. Tell us about that. Running a gym? Weren't you well, running you a gym at some point? You're supposed to be a news guy. <laughs> That's our research. You aren't. You aren't. Ridiculous! I come on CNN, and the guy don't even know what he's talking about. Go ahead. You at no point were you running a gym? Um, no, no, running a gym. What? No, you, you need to work time out. Jesus fucking Christ with these guys. I come on the news for two seconds and, and you want to say, every All time right. I do an interview, a guy wants to open his fucking mouth. Can't All right, Andrew. Do a little thank you very much. Here. We thought that you, you could know, hold go back. fuck yourself. You know what? All fuck right. Fuck the whole fucking network. We'll go back to uh, talking about Art Carney.